welcome to Film Suck, episode number two. I'm Eileen Jones. And I'm Evgenia Kovde. Before we get started, I like, would like to thank um, our subscribers for your support. Our first 50 subscribers will get their Film Suck stickers very soon. I've already mailed them. Today we're talking about independent film, how to define it, what we love and hate about it, and especially what it's like making indie films. Um, and to get at that peculiar hell of indie film production, we're going to be talking to director Kelly Daniela Norris. Uh, she recently uh, was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for her feature film, Nakom. And that's a very big deal in the indie world. But before we get to Kelly, we're going to talk a little bit about our own experience of indie film, making films, watching films. Uh, so should I bother telling the whole history of independent filmmaking all the way back to you know, pioneering film days of the early 1900s with Thomas Edison spearheading the motion picture patents company and trying to get control of the whole industry um, like the bastard uh, he always was and how the independent filmmaking companies, the small companies and small filmmakers rose up defiantly against him. Many of them wound up going out to the West Coast to get away to escape the influence of the motion picture patents company. And that's how you got the founding of Hollywood. The irony being those very independent filmmakers uh, founded the studio system Oligopoly, which becomes famous, which becomes famous as Hollywood. That in turn leads to other little indie movements and resistance to that system. Again, kind of indicates that independent film was always always defined in opposition to corporate film industry control. So shall I bother telling all that whole story? <laughs> I don't think you should bother. So, okay. Right. Yeah, anyone skip can, it. I think, like Google <laughs> or it. Wikipedia. You can Google that. <laughs> exactly. Evgenia, let's hear your well, take I'm first. Well, I'm very... <laughs> Well, not so young, but still very aspiring uh, filmmaker. So I made so far like a, only one proper narrative short film that I took to a number of festivals. And my experience is rather limited. So and since I made it also sort of on my own independently, uh, I shot it in St. Petersburg. It's called Girlfriends. I guess it's a, I don't know, psychological horror thriller. And uh, it was done with uh, such a tiny budget and with the help of like a friend cinematographer. So I, I haven't really experienced the agony of raising funds to make an independent movie like Kelly and most other independent directors who go into the feature production have. So uh, I don't really have much to share, but I have to say that it does seem that... Um, Making mm -hmm. short films gives you an mm -hmm. opportunity to learn the craft. And there's not really much, um, not only distribution, but there's not really much audience even online or elsewhere for short films. So I feel that this specific format is really just for filmmakers themselves mostly. It allows you to learn how to work on the sad and what's your way of working on the sad is. And I feel that honestly, you shouldn't spend a lot of money on making shorts. It's not really where your resources should go, I, I would say. <laughs> 
Yeah, I agree. And and I can remember a, a really, a truly ludicrous interlude in the world of indie films in the 90s where um, somehow everyone drank this crazy Kool-Aid that was being sold about how short films were actually going to become money makers in a kind of viable form. And you had whole companies like Adam Films that were all about acquiring and distributing short films. And, and I, I got sucked in. A lot of people got sucked in. We never, it never made really? any Wait, sense. You mean distributing theatrically? Yes, they were they were entirely occupied with with acquiring and developing etc short films and supposedly all of the all of the major companies were going to start using short films to kind of discover new talent and all this oh so much bullshit went down and of course these companies just folded <laughs> one after another I, I remember going to opening grand opening parties and everything at film festivals it was so much so much nonsense but th- that all I've died never no one even remembers that it it now. that's how ridiculous it sounds <laughs> Yeah, it was very brief and very idiotic, even for indie film. It was it was so dumb. Yeah. But there were multiple companies. And the hype was yeah, off and the one charts. thing I want to yeah. add, but that's just me being somewhat bitter, still graduate MFA student, is that it seems that um most MFA programs, even the most prestigious prestigious ones like Tisch or Columbia or I don't know, like UFC, I guess. Obviously it's great to go there and pay all that money to get to know people and get into the networks but the things that you do there and the, the little short films or sometimes even one only one final short film that you will produce as your or direct as uh, your thesis film it's really i mean not much meaning that something that i've sometimes seen as a short mm-hmm. thesis film from tish graduate school it's just I can't believe that someone spent three years in a film school and all that <laughs> and all that money to eventually come out <laughs> right, with this right. as their what do you call it? Yeah, calling card. come out with that as a calling card. You know, again, I hope I hope their parents are rich. <laughs> I'm I'm serious. No, that's constantly it. And and the rich kid phenomena is a very real one because that's who can be in and that's who can stay in. And if you're some working class person who's always got to have a job and you're always struggling, you're the one who's going to get washed out of the system <laughs> early. She said bitterly. <laughs> I don't know. I've been at Chapman University, which costs the earth. And it was just a horrifying cash cow of just drawing people in and they're going, it's a, it was a private, it's a private school. And they were just going into debt just beyond belief. And what tiny fraction of them were ever going to be able to get jobs work enough to be able to begin to pay that off. It, it just was despair to be there. The parent, you know, meetings with the parents where the dean is trying to tell them how, how, how their kids are all going to be able to somehow make it. I just, it was madness. It is madness, I think. But on the other hand, you've got to have the determination of like a David Lynch to spend you know, how many years working on a racer head, do or die. And he had a paper route. He donated blood. I don't know what all he did to get that film made. But yeah, well, he used the facilities given to him by AFI, right? So, yeah, I mean, but that oh, yeah. wasn't enough to. But to it wasn't go- enough to get him. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. had years afterward to keep <laughs> in Philadelphia in poverty to get that thing made. God, yeah, that's... <laughs> That's kind of horrific. But again, I don't know if you sort of an aspiring, I guess, auteur type who wants to make his Mm -hmm. or her own films, the film school not necessarily going to hurt. That's for sure. Well, it's just, yeah, it's one way to get any kind. You're paying often for 
you know, the access to mentors or and or internships that they they require you to get as a rule that is going to be your first tiny gig, even if you're getting coffee. I mean, that's that is any kind of access is what you're tending to pay for. Yeah. So and other than that, you're on the you're on the you make a film, you go on the festival circuit and you're trying to fight your way up that way. It's kind of no good way, <laughs> pretty much. True, true. And yeah, and it seems that if you're, I mean, the a lot of people in my program, which is very different and not um, uh, neither expensive nor actually prestigious in film world, because it's more of almost like an art program, integrated media mm-hmm. arts. Um, a lot of people, uh, those who are foreign, all the projects that they make and that get then some sort of like get some kind of publicity, they make them abroad where they're from, uh, whether it's Brazil or France or, I don't know, Italy. And it feels like that gives them another leg up in their art slash film world, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Basically, the foreigners yeah. are getting some sort of tools, you know, and so, mm-hmm. some sort of access to, to this. They, they still produce a lot of work abroad. Well, and, and, and again, yeah, the, the subsidies that they get that they can count on. I mean, I had had these Spanish students in my class and they were just horrified they, to, to realize the extent to which Americans you just have nothing. The government offers nothing. There's no there's no little prizes. There's no support. There's no subsidizing. There's no nothing. You're just on your own to figure out a way. Yeah. But at least I guess it's a good place potentially to meet people you're going to work with. That's what they say. One of the selling points, right? Mm -hmm. Which is sometimes true. Oh, and it can be really exhilarating. To to get yourself on the film festival circuit can be one of the great, the great exhilarating experiences. (laughs) Um, Because, yeah, you meet your fellow filmmakers, you know, and of course, working with people, there can be a lot of camaraderie. You're, you're all kind of down and out and scrounging and it can be, it can be one of the most, unfortunately, one of the most exciting periods you might ever encounter. (laughs) I'm saying this, these things that are very, very bitter sounding, aren't they? I'm kind of a veteran of the 1990s uh, indie film wars. (laughs) That's why a lot of PTSD going on Can you talk more about that? You're clearly... I'm yeah, bearing some grudge. Uh, I was a grad student. Yeah, I, I was a grad student. Fellow grad students of mine started um, making short films first and then a feature. And, you know, I was just helping out with that. And, and I was in kind of in defiance of the uh, uh, film department at UC Berkeley because they were absolutely uninterested in production, film production of any kind or knowing anything about it, certainly doing anything with it. It was a completely theory-oriented school. I remember a certain professor um, said, saying, what does it matter how films are made? All right, that has nothing to do with you know, <laughs> Lacanian's, <laughs> Lacanian film theory, so it doesn't matter, right? Uh, so I hated that, and I and I bailed, and I was every chance kind of kind of going to work with my friends on, on films. And I, I, we, we had a fluke happen with their feature film called Suture, um, and very unexpectedly through lots of hard work and trying to get people to see it and trying to get you know, taking it to film festivals, we got wound up getting, this is just still, still seems like a dream, the support of Steven Soderbergh. And he wound up being an executive producer. And the next thing you know, we were kind of launched in a way that we never would have dreamed, especially the filmmaking team, much more than me, of course. And so that's how I wound up getting pulled very unexpectedly into into the world of indie filmmaking. 
so yeah, we had this crazy sudden leg up, and you know they got some awards, and they did they did something really smart, which you should recommend to any young filmmaker: make some big, bold, stylistic leap or something, do something that's a standout. And they shot the film in black and white, widescreen, and in a way that was so dramatic that virtually everyone mentioned it at every festival everywhere they went so it was it was very smart um because there was nothing like that that looked like that try to get a hold of something that no one's doing, just looked up imdb page so rate, I, for Stitcher, and it's available on amazon prime yeah. if someone i I've, yeah. i haven't watched it I, I probably now would like to <laughs> but yeah. it's actually very much has a, a life oh after life you know it, oh, it's it's had more of a life than I think any film I was ever involved with subsequently. I, I'm I'm not sure why. It just I literally teach. It was when I when it was the last class I taught was literally in a in a room at UC Berkeley where there was a giant poster from Suture on the wall, which just wigged me out next to the one of God. Taxi Driver and I know all of these really big films. Belle du Jour. I was like, wow, freaked me out every time I went in there. Um, but so I got pulled in, you know, and I was very much a person coming from Western New York outside, you know, Niagara Falls, and I, I really thought, you know, that's for rich people. Nobody, no real people wind up in the film business so it was a it was a shock but it was also part of the burgeoning uh independent film world that had arisen in the 1980s and by the early 90s was becoming more and more of a like wow we regular people can really get in on this and maybe even have a get a career out of it otherwise it never would have occurred to me so yeah it was like it was a kind of both exhilarating to even dream of it and then be doing it as rough as it always is to do independent film, which is so much about raising money and struggling and <laughs> fighting with each other and uh, you know, all sorts of horrifying, uh, just human fallout that goes on um, as you try to try to make it. And no matter how successful your little film is, in other words, it actually gets distribution. It actually maybe even makes it money back. The next time you're it, you're up to bat, it's the same thing again. You have to start raising money again. You, the whole arduous process starts again unless you you really get you know picked up and given a housekeeping deal by you know i don't know fox or something and that tends not to happen very often so yeah for me i was it was it i can't believe i'm even talking about it because i've tried to keep it a dark secret <laughs> for many years trying never to have anyone know that i was ever involved in indie film because i you know just you know looking back i'm quite I won't say ashamed, but let's just say the films I wound up being involved on were not the films that I would like to represent me. They look very 90s twee um, to me now. Uh, uh, and it, but it was just momentum carried me along from one indie film to, the, to another and certain types of films that got made then and still tend to get made now in the indie world are not my favorite kind of films. I was always trying to segue into genre filmmaking. Always. That's always been my thing. And it's just very hard to do from the indie world, which represents itself as auteur, art film inclined, and almost by definition, not doing genre film. So it wasn't a perfect fit but for you know, me. I, I feel like you're way too humble because um, 
before you even told me that you were involved. Um, I was partially mm -hmm. seeing clips from a movie Conceiving Ada in one of my classes. I think it was last oh, year. God. And But it was a class more about um, some kind of uh, emerging media. So we were talking about internet. But Conceiving Ada, you're a screenwriter for this film. Oh. And I didn't know that. You, you never told oh. me. But it's a good film. It's uh, <laughs> Tilda Swinton is the main character. Yeah, it's about Tilda Ada Lovelace. Like the, uh, uh, how it's yeah. described her better the, the founding oh this is so funny <laughs> you have revealed my true secret shame <laughs> conceiving ada, yeah. ada yeah uh well now no maybe you're pronouncing it right i don't know it's ada lovelace the daughter of lord byron she's credited with coming up with you know in 19th very very 19th century terms the first computer program explaining um um the works of, the work of you know charles babbage who comes up with this first very very early prototype of a kind of kind of massive computer and she explains not only what it can do but what it will be able to do she, 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 in the future, she's regarded as kind of prescient. So anyway, I wind up get, getting hired at, you know, what seemed like a lot at the time. I was still a grad student to uh, help write this with um, with uh, Lynn Hirschman Leeson, um, who was an artist um, and as well as a filmmaker. And she was I was supposed to be helping it make it more like a narrative. And so I'd make it more like a narrative and then she'd change it back to <laughs> stream associative thinking stream of consciousness stuff and then i'd change it back to a narrative and we'd go back and forth back and forth so i i believe there, there's like three complete sentences of mine still surviving <laughs> in the script and yet there's my name emblazoned as co-writer on this on this thing and yeah, and she was friends with Tilda Swinton, and that's how Tilda Swinton wound up playing the role. And Tilda Swinton is genius. She's great. She's so great. And I always say this. She she conveyed everything I wanted to convey about Ada Lovelace without almost any anything, any of the dialogue that I wrote. It's like she just intuited all, because literally Lynn Hirschman Leeson rewrote me almost entirely. So I'm always embarrassed <laughs> as hell. <laughs> but it's very nice that you think it was... It was an okay film. I've always been horrified. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought it was interesting. I think I didn't watch, to be honest, like the entire thing. So I might not be sure of up and... Yeah, you can't watch the modern mm -hmm. frame. The modern frame story is the most embarrassing thing that ever happened. Yeah. So I've always regarded it as a good blackmail opportunity. Well, too late now. It's out, really though. wreck my too late life. Now, but it's so, too late no. now. I'm, <laughs> you outed <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's good to come out. <laughs> so at any rate, yeah, I was I was there for the 90s when basically indie film, which had really started off as very alternative to what was going on in the studio system in or the conglomerate system of Hollywood, kind of morphed over into a mushier area of, you know, financing. Where is it actually coming from? Big stars who are actually doing supposedly indie films. Uh, the content no longer seems like any kind of challenge or alternative to mainstream stuff. So it's gotten very foggy, what we even mean by independent film anymore. But, you know, that first bunch that were coming up in the mid 80s, that's like the Coen brothers and I don't know, Spike Lee and Jim Jarmusch and all those people, you know, they really weren't working at a tiny low budget level, you know, raising money privately. The Coens literally financed their first film by going up to dentist's <laughs> office and, and, and showing their little piece of film and get, getting trying to get 10 grand out of them, that kind of thing. So people would max out their credit cards and all that kind of stuff. 
it's quickly turned into it's it's much more hard to determine what actually is independent film at all anymore. And, you know, we'll be talking about that with Kelly. What is the real issue? What do we even so mean by it? Initially, it obviously was more of a real term for just describing the way of a of a certain certain films were made, produced and distributed to as well, which was independent from the studios. And now it's almost like become a term that means some sort of a static choice for a filmmaker rather than anything else, right? Yeah, it seems like it's also like alternative content, like something you couldn't get made, you know, by the big companies that's not in any way mainstream that forms some sort of challenge to the mainstream. You know, and it was that that that's very much supposed uh, one of the strands of meaning if it's not literally how you financed it it's you know whether the content is regarded as challenging and something that you could never nothing's get nothing's challenging anymore what is it company. feels like what there any topic yeah. and any transgression has been i think uh, allowed in any kind of major tv show or movie or anything like that so i'm not even you know content wise it's exactly it just seems like, at least, are we in a very timid era? It seems like, it's just like, yeah, when you're hunting for the the bold alternative, what you're seeing looks awfully mainstream. Everything, everything has started to look awfully mainstream. But, you know, again, when, when you had the initial rise of the indies, at least of our era, the 80s rise, you know, Hollywood began poaching immediately. They immediately seemed to, you know, the, the big companies seemed to recognize very early on what the opportunity was. This is going to be where we just go pluck, you know, we acquire all of these projects cheap. We fill out our own slates cheap and easy. We, we find all the up and coming talent. And so they just co-opted everything almost as fast as you could as you could do it if you can pull david lynch into mainstream filmmaking you know that's that's some pretty bold filmmaking and yet he's been able to to work for all these he's a genius that always helps but i mean um you know we everything it seems like it can get pulled in and at the same time your mind is scrambling going i know there's got to be a lot bolder ways of making film i think sorry to bother you is a good example it's a messy film it's got all sorts of problems i think there's things that don't work about it but just this spirit of like there's a boldness and that you just feel like thank god i i haven't seen this before i haven't seen every move you're making 20 times at film festivals and in art houses i will just try to say a few words about film industry again in yeah, general and in indie in russia and what is interesting is that obviously like russia is one of the or i guess soviet union back in the day was one of the one of the countries in the forefront of just filmmaking and cinema in general. And now in New Russia, it's really just almost like any, I don't like this term, but some kind of like third world country. Because there is uh, some internal kind of market and they're clearly, they're quite, um, I can't say for sure, there may be like a few hundred of films that made every year. Um, but most of them for still have very little or if not zero artistic value and they frequently just some sort of copies of Hollywood genre movies or just of Hollywood films and they're not that good of copies too so they definitely lose to the Hollywood movies that are, that get distribution in the movie, in Russian movie mm-hmm. theaters as well so it's kind of like a, a really weird situation it seems that way and um, what is interesting the way things are run there is that uh, similar to I think European countries definitely not America there there, there is a it's called Cinema mm-hmm. Fund or Cinema Foundation which is a government 
um, sort of organization that has a yearly budget that it should distribute to filmmakers to make movies, and it, these are the money that do not have does not have to be returned. And uh, it's actually for Russia again. It seems to be quite a large budget. I think it's about sixteen million dollars, and you know again the production uh, is way cheaper than America. So it goes a long way, those $60 million a year. But the problem with that is that uh, supposedly anyone can have, um, can get funding from the from government from this fund and anyone can apply with and pitch their film or their script to be more precise. But the problem is that wow. it almost never happens. So the way things run, it's really just like almost like a small kind of mafia. People who own the major production companies are the same people who sit on the board of that cinema foundation, who in the jury or so-called jury, uh, which is <laughs> funny to even call it that, uh, who are distributing the money for the, for the year. And the level of corruption is kind of ridiculous. And also the obviousness of that, because what I'm saying is actually can be easily proved by some very superficial kind of research. Also recently, I think it's uh, transparency what is it? I think it's Transparency uh-huh. International published a pretty big, uh, somewhat like uh, expose with a graph who relates to whom, what's happening, what mm, is with Cinema yeah. Foundation in Russia. So, and that boils down to the fact that they're basically <laughs> just five major companies and they all get money the same, uh, you, you rarely get <laughs> this um, piece of the, <laughs> big piece of that budget. And uh, another big thing, not only they get that money and they make pretty bad, <laughs> barely watchable films, they also there's a mm-hmm. big um, tradition uh, again fairly known kind of open of um, kind of kickbacks and just stealing part of the budget and making <laughs> uh, a film with less uh, with a much lesser budget than it's officially stated do you know what I mean mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's even worse than, than it sounds not only majors divide all this money but it's also extremely corrupt yeah. the way it's produced and uh, the funny thing that I don't know someone might know there was this uh, pretty big Soviet filmmaker who might be sort of world famous especially for the film he directed uh, based on uh, mm. War and Peace Sergei Bondarchuk and uh, so his son is also a filmmaker <laughs> And an extremely bad one, but mm-hmm. very big, huge productions, uh, films about war, very kind of propagandistic and kind of Russian films. And he's basically the head of the Cinema Foundation mm-hmm. and all his friends are part of the board of directors. So that kind of boils down to that. It's also extremely almost like hereditary, right? Nepotistic from the Soviet times. Yeah. And that's how general films are made. And then if you completely outside of that mm-hmm. system, by outside, I mean, you personally do not know those people and this way. You really have almost, mm-hmm. <laughs> unless you make just like really cheap films mm-hmm. with your friends on some kind of DSLR camera and distribute them, I don't know, YouTube, or I don't even know what. You really have no way of, of making the films that, let's say, indie uh, filmmakers in America can potentially make, even if it's mm-hmm. a lot of struggle and it's hard that they can make and raise funding. So it feels like it's, yeah, it's basically the real indie filmmaking is almost non-existent. Obviously there's the other way when, Mm -hmm. again, it's not accessible to many. Uh, The films that are funded outside of that um, state system, they're basically funded by just rich people who want to or oligarchs or minigarchs or however you refer to them that uh, you might be friendly with and who ready to lose (laughs) a few million, how much much money you need because they personally think... (laughs) 
this film is interesting, the script is interesting, or you have some talent. Very few people have this type of personal connections because it really boils down to sort of person, personally knowing people who can personally invest in your film. And again, the crowdfunding is almost non-existent. So it's not, there are not that many alternative ways um, it feels like to make any films. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So I could just say, you know, you know, nepotism, corruption, dynastic, uh, you know, filmmaking opportunities, all that, all that stuff that that seems true of Hollywood too, but it sounds like it's even more nakedly true. <laughs> In, in Russia, maybe than even in Hollywood. Yeah, basically, there's no pretense. Which, on some guys. level, there's some kind of like that, yeah. you almost kind of mm. appreciate this kind of vulgar and nasty. But the openness of this, I'm this because my dad <laughs> was this, and now I'm head of the cinema fund, and I'll get all the money, and all my friends are gonna get this money to produce their shitty films. <laughs> right. So it's it's right. yeah, it's so really interesting, and, and no one can say anything because it's I don't know, that's the way it is. And again, I feel like probably in any country, cinema is generally very kind of overall elitist the enterprise right so the same in russia and before that soviet union it was an extremely kind of elitist yeah yeah in america they drive you crazy with this sense that you too could (laughs) you could rise you could make that indie film and next thing you know you're going to be some you know big shot film director um and it's so difficult to do. It's just unimaginably. There's a great line by Walter <laughs> Matthau, the great, the great American 40. actor, and he said, "All you need to succeed in Hollywood is forty good breaks." And it's so true. <laughs> like you get five. I was working with directors who got well, maybe five really good breaks, it's, and they all seem miraculous. Forty, he said, forty. <laughs> oh, which makes me think about again, not Russian, but like back in the day Soviet film system, the way it was run, and it seems that the the way things were done is that you could be actually truly an indie filmmaker in Soviet Union with a very distinct vision, and uh, because everything was obviously there was state, there's no nothing private, you could get funding to make your artsy film made. But the difference from Hollywood was that you could get it made, but it would never be shown. So it would be, as they say, there's like the Russian way of saying it, it could be on the shelf. Mm. It might be forever after, who knows, depends. And and in a way, it's like kind of an interesting Mm -hmm. freedom that it gave people. They're movies could have been made and they were it's i happened a lot with tarkovsky Mm -hmm. and actually other filmmakers like that but they were never really shown and distributed or anything like this and uh but it's an interesting kind of compromise because in the end at least they do exist and it wasn't it wasn't that much of a struggle to get them in because no one cared because there was another board that were reviewing Mm -hmm. them once they made yeah it's like oh are they up to the i don't know morale it was some kind of I guess morality, and if they were not, no one cared. They already get made. No one. It's just every the funding has to be used somehow. So that's an interesting system. It always makes me think like it was in some way easier, almost less censorship while making it, and then a lot of censorship while right. trying to show <laughs> well, it right. in the movie yeah, theater. Yeah, total freedom to not have your film show. <laughs> yeah, you can show it to friends and family. Basically, exactly. yeah, but at least it's made. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's like more than most filmmakers can dream of here, you know? <laughs> it's true. It's totally true. I mean, again, that there's that haunting idea that for many, many filmmakers internationally, if you can get it on the film festival circuit, and now there are so many film festivals, even in tiny towns, you can get it shown somewhere. That might be your whole distribution. Your whole exhibition is film festivals. And it's an accepted thing. And that's how harrowing 
a world it is for the for the filmmaker. Oh God. Okay. Uh, let's let's now listen, I guess, to Kelly. Let me introduce um, Kelly Daniela Norris, who's our first guest uh, on FilmSuck. Kelly graduated from the film studies program at Columbia University. That's where she met her uh, filmmaking partner, Teresa Pittman. And together they founded Rusquache Films in 2008. Um, they made a short film called Cinnerman and, and two, two feature films, um, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, while making films, Kelly went on with her education. She's got a master's degree in teaching um, from Pace University and a master's in film and media from UC Berkeley. That's where I met her. Uh, in the interests of full disclosure, uh, Kelly was once my teaching assistant in my history of avant-garde film class. So we've been in the trenches together. She was she was a, a damn good TA who actually prevented her students from committing harakiri and despair from watching avant-garde films. And we got to be good friends from there. Uh, so Kelly's first feature, Sombras de, um, de Azul, shades means shades of blue, was shot on location in Cuba. And it works as a kind of journey narrative through that country, as well as through her own memory. It serves as a tribute to her late brother, um, with whom she'd always hoped to see Cuba. Uh, the film won the Audience Award at the Austin Film Festival. Uh, Kelly's second feature, Nakom, was shot on location in a remote farming village in northeastern Ghana. It premiered at the Berlin International Film Festival in 2016 and was nominated for uh, a 2017 Independent Spirit Award. And we're mainly going to be focusing on Nakom as our example of how independent films get um, produced, distributed, and exhibited. And so just to kind of frame that up for you before we start talking, it's a film about a medical student living in a city. He's living a very modern urban life, but he gets drawn back into his rural village of Nakom after the death of his father. And he has to make a kind of agonizing choice between his personal ambitions and the, you know, the kind of vivid and beautiful, but incredibly difficult traditional life of his family and their community. So let's bring Kelly on to tell us about her experiences fighting the indie film wars. And we'll be back in February. So Kelly, in a, in a recent interview in Filmmaker Magazine, as part of um, uh, a longer article called 25 New Faces of 2016, you talk about your production company, Rasquache Films. And in the interview, uh, Rasquache is defined as a, quote, initially pejorative Mexican term for great art made from nothing. But I, I just have the overall impression that there's more to Rasquache um, than is was talked about. So I Love to hear you say a little bit more about your choice of Rasquache as um, your your film company name. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I first encountered the term um, at the De Young Museum in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and this was right after I graduated college. Uh, Teresa, her family, and she was born and raised in San Francisco, and she took me there. And it was actually Cheech Marin. Uh, you know, the, wow, yeah, of the comedic duo, Chicha uh, Chong. Yeah, so Chicha has <laughs> Chich has an incredible Chicano art collection that he had lent the the young. Uh, museum. And so we went there and that's how I came across the movement. Um, but the term itself, it's, it's, it's much older and is, it has only been reclaimed by artists, I think starting from like the late eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, but the original term was a derogatory, derogatory one for like the lower class and like lower class aesthetics, uh, mainly families that were using essentially recycled 
and discarded junk to make homes or to, you know, like putting together tires and, and other elements that you could to create uh, spaces or like a makeshift desk, you know, Mm -hmm. um, or I mean, sometimes functional, uh, but in this case, it's also, um, it can also be used aesthetic uh, or referring to like an aesthetic decision. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Teresa and I, we, we very much responded to that, um, to that concept because I mean, uh, especially as, as filmmakers who didn't really have much to work with, but certainly have our own resources, um, internally and, but not necessarily monetarily. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was about trying to make something out of very little, um, and that your research resources shouldn't necessarily, uh, preclude you from being able to make something great. Um, so that's yeah. sort of the, the, the meaning, but it, it also has like a bicultural sensibility, um, to it as well. Um, just in terms of being a part of an art movement, but also not necessarily having the bourgeois, <laughs> which is often th- those two usually used to go hand in hand, but it's trying to destabilize that. Um, which sounds suspiciously like you have class sensibilities, Kelly, which I'm thrilled to hear. <laughs> you go on. Yes. <laughs> I mean, do you regard what you're doing as, a, as you know, political filmmaking? Oh, yeah. Um, I think so. I mean, definitely, because mm-hmm. it, it, it exists in, in, in all of our, our actions and thoughts. And, and we tend to be very social minded, um, mm-hmm. both Teresa and I. Um, and so, yes, I, I think <laughs> that's definitely a, a large part of our filmmaking. Would you say that Rasquache is is a way you could also define independent film? You know, um, making something great, hopefully out of almost nothing, um, at least in maybe aspirational terms. Or would you say that's really not how independent film is working <laughs> at all, despite the I- hype? Yeah, I think, it, I mean, in my mind, aspirationally and in its purest sense, yes, that that to me should be the definition of mm-hmm. an independent film. Um, of course, it has moved so far from that mark um, and, and, and to the point to where I think independent uh, filming or filmmaking has really lost a lot of its meaning. I don't even quite understand what the definition is. I think that there, there are some that I mean, there are studio definitions of it that is, you know, it has to be over 50% of your financing comes from uh, private private funders or private financiers. And that means that you can have a $100 million budget and somehow call yourself an independent film, um, which means that you're, you have all the resources in the world oftentimes at that point. Um, so then I, I question whether or not it's aesthetically or independent or if it has the mindedness of being independent. Um, I mean, just the, the idea of existing outside of a commercial like channel is the basis of being independent. It it is referring to a type of subversion of the Mm -hmm. mainstream of capitalism, of, of certain trends that we expect from all those very typical commercial channels. Right. It seems, it seems like there are two, you could argue anyway, main components to, to trying to define independent and independent filmmaking. And the one is the financial and the other is what aesthetic cultural 
just as yeah. you just said. And, and with the implication, there's some at least alternative to mainstream commercial filmmaking. But as you say, we've seen that so horrible that line so horribly blurred that who can even who can even say yeah. half the time but yet we we have to go on apparently with this term which is in use everywhere yeah i think Teresa and i often wonder if we could just carve out our own more specific and more accurate term for ourselves and often we just go with micro budget like we're a micro budget film because um because the thing is aesthetically you can mimic a lot of independent tropes mm-hmm. in um, but just have lots of money to do that. And so then therefore you're, you're in my mind, you're not really as independent as you think you are. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you've Wait, actually what do you op- mean by the tropes? When you say mimicking the tropes, what are the cliches um, here? Oh, I mean, uh, handheld, you can, I'm, there, there are certain films that can sort of mimic certain styles. So having handheld, uh, or very, just very stylized sets, um, uh, I mean, I think there there are certain certain like slice of life mm-hmm. storylines that are also that that tends to be uh, more common in independent cinema. I mean, it's all stuff that I enjoy seeing. So, <laughs> but I just don't know if those films actually authentically carry a label of independent. Um, yeah, the ten millionth sensitive coming of age story. <laughs> yes, <laughs> if you go to exactly. film festivals, you've seen over and over. <laughs> you know, yeah. everyone loves Jason Schwartzman, and you know I do too. But it's <laughs> the point where if you have certain A-list ask- actors, you you might not be as independent as you think, just because you're. You know, uh, it, it's it's tricky. I I don't even know where what what the answers are but i certainly know that in my experience it looks very different than what other independent sets have looked like often relating to the fact that we're working with like such minuscule hardly their budgets um Mm -hmm. and sort of are forced to make things work um despite that lack have you ever worked in other people's films how did you learn the craft um uh, well, I've worked on a few uh, other people's like little side projects when I was an undergrad. Um, it wasn't uh, I, I've, I've had only a, a small exposure to like a studio or a larger um, production life is like um, I did get to spend some time with David Milch. Both Teresa and I um, were mentored by him, which was a really extraordinary experience. And so we really got to see what that looked like with him, you know, negotiating with HBO executives and, you know, dealing with the, the sort of the infiltration of, of Hollywood directors and Hollywood approaches to, television at the time he was working with Michael Mann um and we we went to the set once and got a just sort of a peep of of what that was I and David Melchie is a tv writer and creator he is probably most famously known at this point for Deadwood um Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. but that's quite a a supporter by the way let me just congratulate you oh Oh, he's he's such he's a phenomenal mind and thinker and writer um he's sort of a novelist who just happened to happened into television um Mm -hmm. robert penn warren was his his mentor at at yale and and he's he's just a he's a wild character um who just kind of channels voices and creates stories and could care. He jokes that the last film he saw was um, 
breakfast at Tiffany's. He, he's just, he's not, yeah. he doesn't, you can't talk to him about cameras or, or anything. He doesn't want to know. He just, all he uh-huh. cares about is the, is, is the story itself. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a really great mentor to have um, for our writing and, and, um, and, and just generally. Um, and, but my mom actually knew him from NYPD Blue. <laughs> They, that was that was I think his his best, his big first series. Um, but uh-huh. he's he's a part of that, and I would say one of the pioneers of that movement from high production value, very cinematic um, mm-hmm. television mm-hmm. series, or you know, um, especially the ones that we know HBO for. Um, but my overall experience and, and sort of how I, we learn the craft is just it's been very like autodidactic, just picking it up. Um, a, a lot of what we, we don't have any formal training. We didn't go to film school. Uh, however, Teresa and I met in undergrad at Columbia in the film studies department, which has nothing to do with production. Um, and it's more about film history, film critique, film theory, um, and film analysis. Um, and I think that's exactly where we learned the craft is just from both being cinephiles for a long time and watching <laughs> so much film and watching it, I guess, very carefully that you, you start to kind of obsess. Um, and in, in terms of like just technical knowledge, we've been, we've been gaining that along the way um, often because we've, we've been, <laughs> we've been forced to, in order to, to get through each stage of the process. Um, the, cinematographer that we've worked with for all of our work, starting with our very first short film, who we met on Craigslist, best thing I've found <laughs> on Craigslist ever, Bob Guile. Um, he, he's someone who is very technically trained and, and, and so we, we picked up a lot from him. Um, so it's more like we attended the Bob Guile film school. Um, <laughs> And he's someone who's very independently minded. He he works with such minimal. It's it's amazing what he's able to create with just a suitcase full of gear. Um, and he's lucky if he even has anyone to help him out. And he'll light his own. He'll he'll light the whole whole set. He works very quickly. Um, he's he's pretty. He's very geeky about the technology, which helps. Um, yeah. So, uh, but everything we learned was just through hands-on experience and just film watching. I even recall like our very first scene that we had ever shot, which was in a subway in New York for a short film that Trace and I made called Center Man. And, you know, he, he sort of was instructing me, okay, you, you have to, you call action for, for camera and then for sound. And, um, and then I, with the, the actors, I had just said, okay, <laughs> Go. <laughs> like I didn't want to say action because it just felt so strange to me. And I remember right. him whispering in my ear, he's like, no, you know, the, the actors, they do really like it when, when you say action. <laughs> so that's how much of a, of an amateur <laughs> I was. I didn't even want to say action. I just wanted to say, all right, go. Well, it must Time. feel so embarrassing. Like you're pretending you're a, a director in a film, <laughs> you know, in yeah, some overly dramatic yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, <It's>, yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm already like very much in my own mind most of the time, but I become very hyper aware of the fact that mm-hmm. I'm, I'm playing a certain role. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, in, in the fact that you have like certain protocol and language that you have to say makes you also feel like you're yourself are acting. Um, <laughs> 
Did you yell quiet on set? <laughs> yeah, to all the, the all the subway folks. Yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> I can't yell. That's the other thing. It's it's not. Um, I'm a horrible. I'm horrible at yelling. Um, so I just don't do it. <laughs> well, and, this is a good yeah. segue to getting into to to the just the whole process of making one of your films which is your most recent is Nakom. Yeah. oh and i should just say by the way that it, that's so impressive about your cinematographer because your films just look <laughs> stunningly beautiful uh-huh. I, I was just shocked at how gorgeous um they are uh so that's really a tribute wow um oh, to your dp thank you yeah. yeah no he's he's yeah he's incredible and 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 it's it's a lot of fun working with him because he allows us to be as like hyper specific and he he doesn't see that as a drag. Um, mm. Yeah, as far as the process with Nakom, so this is going to take just a, a little mild backtracking. Yeah, but, please. Uh, and I had worked on our what was my first feature, Sombras de Sul, which we shot in Cuba, and and we it was a very exhausting and difficult experience. A lot because it had to do with you know. Uh, Sort of, it's a film that's helping me process the loss of my brother, and mm-hmm. um, so it was also just emotionally exhausting. And then mm-hmm. it, it, we had worked on that for three years, and uh, it was sort of held up by a, a sales agency um, who kept promising that they were going to get it into a festival, this top tier festival. Mm-hmm. And they were taking on, I think, a lot of other films um, that were doing very well, and just kind of neglected ours. Um, mm-hmm probably because it was a, a, a trickier piece to to promote mm-hmm. um and we were so we just needed to move fast um and uh Teresa had she so she lived in Nakom as a Peace Corps volunteer um it for for two years and it I mean it had like a, just a, a massive like it, just a profound influence on her I actually got to visit her when she was there and I and and so you know Teresa she's she's a a trans woman um and she lived there prior to her transition and she Mm -hmm. described Nakoma as the place where she felt most at home um Mm -hmm. and and so that's saying a lot. And, mm-hmm. you know, while she was there, even many, many of her, her friends in the village would ask her um, about what she was going to do in the U.S. And she talked about her own, you know, aspirations with filmmaking. And the, one of the lines was, oh, are you going to come back, make a film here? So mm-hmm. there was that that was in her head. Um, and also, you know, I think because it had such a profound experience and she tend, she's very observant and, and she writes a lot of notes and things mm-hmm. that she's processing, she's going on. And so um, coming out of the the disappointment of trying to get Sombras on the festival circuit and not being able to and it just being held up, I, I gave her a month and I went to Mexico to visit family and I said, you have one month to write this project that you've been talking about, um, which was Nakom. And sure enough, in 30 days, she had her first draft. Um, and, and it was already, and I think it's because it had been germinating for, for, you know, years that I, I, she, she described it as it just, it just came right back. And, um, and from that moment on, we, we started to really try to figure out how exactly is it plausible? Cause the story itself takes takes place over the course of a single like of a full narrative year Mm -hmm. um 
where and and the fact that it's a it's it's an epic farming film so you have to see vegetation in its various stages and it's meant to reflect you know um sort of the emotional tenor of the characters um so you know the 80% of it is is, dur- is during the dry season and then you're supposed to watch Millet get to where it's like towering over, um, you know, at 10, 12 feet above, you know, everyone in sight. And, and then you're supposed to watch like, you know, the beauty of the harvest. Um, and that's all very challenging because we couldn't live there for a year and certainly couldn't, you know, make couldn't you know bring bob to live for a year to live in ghana for a year yeah so um we we started to figure out what are our most what are going to be the main logistical problems and so that was the first one that we had to really figure out and um sort of decided okay what if we approached it in the opposite direction where we go there right as the millet is you know growing um where, where it's almost at its height and then and just film everything that is related to, uh, you know, the, the farming scenes right Mm -hmm. then. And then, and then once the harvest is, is gone, then, um, then we'll be there for the the dry season. And so we shot in reverse. Um, Mm -hmm. and so the very first scene that we shot was actually the one with comfort and Idrisu in the millet where, yeah, where it is like towering over, both of them. Um, it's sort of the romantic scene where they're in mm-hmm. sort of in the midst of it. Right. Um, of all that green foliage. Um, and then, and then that meant that for the, even though script wise or narratively it's 80% dry season, I would say we were there for 80% of <laughs> the rainy season, which oh, meant that God. we were concealing a lot of millet and greenery um, throughout the process. So mm-hmm. since most of the scenes are in the compound, that meant that we had volunteers sitting on millet all around the <laughs> periphery. So that way you wouldn't see it. Um, so it was a lot of tricks like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, it, because it's, it's, it's a very low budget and we had a friend who, you know, he's, uh, who we had known from undergrad and he's been very supportive of us. And he's the one who helped us to make, uh, or financially gave us, mm-hmm. you know, like essentially what was pocket change <laughs> to make wow. sombras. And he was in, sh- uh, he was in shock, um, by the fact that we pulled it off. So with no comb, it became, I mean, he, 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 we were able to show him the script. Um, we've created a, a very thick prospectus and visual. And I, I, I do storyboard even if it's not used. Um, and Mm -hmm. I'm not an artist, but I storyboard every single shot. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he knew just how, um, how serious we were. And, And he's the one who helped, um, to make this happen. Um, and with a slightly larger budget, which was still not much. Um, but the production itself took place over the course of four months. Um, and it started with, oh, I, I, I'm, I actually, I am mad at myself. I haven't even mentioned, uh, um, Isaac, um, Adakutagu, who's been, I mean, he, he's essential to all stages of this. Um, Isaac is our producer, um, mm-hmm. of Nakom and he's also a Nakom resident and filmmaker himself. Uh, and he's someone who, became very close with Teresa when she was in a comb. He was 
in the high school, attending secondary school and after school would come and, and hang out with her and ask her a lot of questions. They would talk about film. And so it was when Teresa wrote that first script that she started sending it to Isaac and Isaac would make corrections and that it, mm-hmm. it, it started a process of passing it back and forth. And Isaac um, started to talk to us in terms of like he, he started putting together lists in advance of, you know, who, who might be able to play which character from the village mm-hmm. um, and setting up essentially uh, putting certain things in place that he, that he could um, before we even got there. Um, so that way, when we auditioned, we auditioned through the churches and had people who were already very aware of each of the roles. Um, and, well, and let me just interject. Of, you, yes. you just had formidable help to the point that we can skip by what for many independent filmmakers you'd spend ages on, which is how you got the money. <laughs> yeah. know, that's usually what preoccupies exactly. this ridiculous degree that how you spend your time if you're an independent filmmaker and you're always oh, yes. back to square zero and you have to start this arduous process. But you just have what they used to call on Broadway an angel who oh, yes. funds you, which is just extraordinary. Wow, you won the lottery there. Oh, we definitely <laughs> did. Um, and I think what, absolutely. And, um, and I think what, what, what has helped was that the very first thing that we ever asked him for, it wasn't, we were asking for very little and Mm -hmm. we just, we made it happen, Mm -hmm. um, which boosted his confidence, um, -hmm. when we came back around. So you were, you were at the point where you have this, you know, marvelous producer right there, local, to help you arrange everything. And that's another miracle that you've got going yes. for you. Oh, yeah. And then he's already casting, already kind of pre-casting for you mm-hmm. when you when you get going. So, yes. yeah, carry on from there. Oh, yeah. And so, um, Teresa and I had around five weeks of, of, okay, so we had, for our pre-production, we had U.S. pre-production, which was us working remotely with Isaac, remotely with Bob, getting everything that we, that, that we needed to gather, including props that we knew that we weren't going to be able to find once we were there or just that it would be a struggle. Um, so essentially amassing all of that. And then we had five weeks of Ghanaian pre-production, which was about figuring out our locations and our cast. Um, and I would say casting (laughs) took Mm up every single minute of that. Um, and Mm -hmm. including just living with this constant fear because every, it was a, a true leap of faith, you know, that we were going to be able to find this magical Adrisu, this, you know, this mm-hmm. person who would be able to um, carry an entire film um, that spoke Kusal, which is already, you know, creating a very, uh, a very particular pool. Um, and then also had that flair of, of, you know, could very convincingly be from, or live in, you know, uh, a larger metropolis, like, um, like Kumasi or like Accra, like kind of has that, that Western vibe. Yeah, and he's um, a remarkable performance. I mean, he's oh, just so compelling and he has the greatest face. He has this kind oh, of prematurely yeah. furrowed brow. That's just wonderful. Yes. Yes. He looks worried oh, all I, the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I mean, talk about another miracle of the fact that we even mm. met him. And I mean, Teresa and I sound, we, we sound like crazy people. Uh, when the, from the second that we got, um, that we, we, um, got to Accra because every single person we met, we would ask them if anyone that fit that description. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
it was by the time we, we, so we kind of made our way up, up to Nakom. Um, and I should say that Accra is at the very southern point. And then Nakom is the most northern point where you're pretty much almost in Burkina Faso. Um, mm. you, you couldn't be farther away from, mm-hmm. um, mm. from the capital. Uh, but as I, I remember is when by the time we got to uh, the university where we shot um, and we were meeting with officials there in order to get the permits, um, which was pretty much the our, our, our own, <laughs> the only time we've really tried to go about getting permits <laughs> because we knew mm-hmm. we had to. Um, uh, we had other uh, other ways that made this uh, whole production official, but that's the only mm-hmm. um that's because it was pretty much the only place where we were shooting outside of the village. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a student there who we spoke to. And he's like, you know, I actually have a few friends that live in Boku, which is the the biggest town closest to Nakom, um, mm-hmm. that is predominantly uh, Kusasi. Uh, and, and so we arranged to meet with them. And, uh, and that's when we finally got up there. And at that point we had already auditioned like a dozen people and, you know, mm-hmm. it was, it was always, you know, you, you want to, you, you want to imagine that it's going to work, but in, in mm-hmm. your head, you're, it's just not obvious. And so mm-hmm. then it creates some doubt. Um, mm-hmm. and then when Jacob walked up, um, to this hut where we were having, this uh, audition, it was, I mean, he, oh, he's just visually very striking. He just has a mm-hmm. presence. Um, so uh, uh, already um, it felt like he had walked right off the page. And then when he started, you know, um, reading the lines, it was, it was amazing how, how flexible he was. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he actually of all the actors has had the most acting experience, mm-hmm. which is pretty funny to say it like that because his acting experience is um acting in a high school skit oh my gosh Um, that's his that's and yet he to me he could play james bond if he wanted to like he's just (laughs) he's unbelievable um Mm. um and it wasn't actually until we had our first q a at berlin that i learned that um that he had actually that after the first day of shooting had like on his phone looked up on Google how to act and the first thing he read was <laughs> act like you're not acting which uh-huh. I mean thank god that's the first <laughs> that could have been so much worse yeah that, but he, he he went with that and it really it, it made our job so easy like I I, I just I I was constantly in awe um mm-hmm. of his abilities but yeah, so anyway, uh, most of production was us fearing whether or not we were going to find this lead actor um, who could carry the film. And mm-hmm. by the time, and and I, I miss, you know, there's a lot. <laughs> the production mm-hmm. itself, you know, once Bob got there. Um, uh, and we, so we, it was me, Teresa, Isaac, um, uh, many, many members of Nakom who were helping, including the the chief uh, who had blessed the film starting mm-hmm. from day one. Um, uh, another Peace, Peace Corps volunteer um, who is, had had finished his service, but um, his wife is Ghanaian. He was waiting for a visa and he had some time to kill. And so he mm-hmm. w- he became our sound recordist um, and, and his wife helped on set. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and... 
that's just some of the best of indie film experiences that it sounds like. Yes. <laughs> sounds like it's you had a, there. Oh yeah. yeah. Like just people throwing in. Very yes, helpful. exactly. Um, yeah. Just, just entering into it because I got excited. So um, even before recording, we started talking about the script, right? How it, how it actually even oh, um, yes. <laughs> was produced, right? In, in Kusasi language. So could you talk about that? So it was a script uh, originally written in English, right? Yes. And who co-wrote it? Was a co-writer from, the Ghana, from Ghana and who translated it? How basically it all works? Because you were shooting in a language you don't, since you probably don't know. Yeah, right? that's right. Um, no, uh, so Teresa, she... She learned uh, Kusa when she was there and took, mm-hmm. you know, made it a point to learn as a volunteer, um, even though English is the national language of Ghana. Um, uh, but yeah, so it was written, but it, however, it was written in English. And the idea was we even brought this like, the, uh, you know, this mobile printer and you know, purchase stacks of paper and when we got there in order to print out um, scripts for each cast member. And this was, that was the idea is once we cast, you know, the role, you, you hand the script over, but I don't know how Teresa missed this, (laughs) Um, but uh, Kusal is not, there is no standardized written form, which means that each person has um, like their own phonetic version mm-hmm. of it because and, and that's if it's even taught um to be written um which makes it a very complicated situation and it's not as easy as just being able to print out a script and and have it translated and hand off to to your mm-hmm. actors it meant that every line had to be orally taught um to each actor including all the cues and it and, and I, so Isaac was actually the the one who had translated it. So it's all his kusal. Um, mm-hmm. The whole script is it, like it went through, you know, the Isaac filter, and so it is his version of kusal. And he, you know, for all of our like rehearsals, he he worked with us to you know communicate each line as he felt it should be said, um, and, and in order for every actor to learn what their scenes were and their cue lines. But what's, what's really interesting about even that process is it meant that actors actually only knew, and this is, you know, just because of what the amount of time and how quickly you had to move, um, only knew their scenes. They, oh they, like we communicated the whole story, but you know, most, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's not like we had time to read the whole script. Um, mm-hmm you know, to each individual actor. And it was only Jacob who knew from beginning to end that whole script. Mm -hmm. Um, So it sounds like agony. Oh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, at at this point, I think I'm, uh, we're all in such shock that, I mean, Mm because it was always on the brink of just feeling like it could all fall apart. Like it it just, Mm -hmm. the entire thing felt um, just impossible. Um, Mm -hmm. And yet we were like naive and kind of, kind of foolish (laughs) and but like Mm -hmm. I'm glad that we were to think that uh that it would happen because then somehow like certain miracles took place and we 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 met the you know we had the right sort of attitude and the right sort of volunteers um that 
you know, hopped on that made all of this even possible. But yes, everything, everything at the moment felt like an absolute nightmare. Um. <laughs> Sounds so familiar. Uh, That's exactly right. If you knew ahead of time, yeah. you'd run screaming. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, and that's not even getting into the amount of illnesses that everyone no. experienced. Oh, like, you know, the day that that Bob arrived, we hadn't even shot anything. We hadn't even, you know, we were still, at, you know, rehearsing and figuring out our, we haven't even figured out a lot of our locations yet. Mm-hmm. The day he arrived, uh, Teresa and I had, terrible fevers because we we ate something we passed by a meat stand and she's like oh i remember i love this place and the next day we were we were vomiting like we're greeting him and run and like he like i think i'm surprised bob didn't just like turn back around i think (laughs) (laughs) um because we were so ill and and even two weeks before that Teresa had malaria and i and that's that's a (laughs) <laughs> you didn't get wow. a shot? Oh, we were on anti-malarials. Oh, no. So the whole thing was... Wow. Uh, like we, we thought we had... Yeah, we had preemptively took like taken care of that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was just a curveball. Um, uh, and I've, I've actually blocked <laughs> off a lot of that experience because I, I honestly thought she was going to die. And oh I was God. left with this feeling of, am I going to be in the position where I'm... I'm going to have to decide whether or not this is the whole thing is, is over. Like we need uh-huh. to just, <laughs> or would Teresa, <laughs> I'm going to plan her if, funeral. Yeah, yeah, or, would, or, or would Teresa <laughs> expect me to finish this without her? Is that what, <laughs> which is a very morbid thought. Um, and, and, and something that when we talked about after she's like, of course you would, I would expect you to, to finish the film. <laughs> You're a true filmmaker yeah. as well. Um, <laughs> And, you know, and even uh, because it was rainy season and because of, you know, Nakom, it actually does have like stagnant, bo- like uh, the word Nakom means uh, king of water. So even though mm. it's a very dry terrain up north, um, it does have certain stagnant bodies of water. And so, of course, that breeds many <laughs> mosquitoes and which meant that um, that a lot of our cast and crew members were often like getting sick from malaria during the rainy season. Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, Aziz who plays, uh, Kumal, like he, mm-hmm. he, ha- he got malaria like three times and, and Jacob mm-hmm. got it once. And it, it just <sighs> like, everyone was it, it, like, it was a type of production where we were working 16, 17 hour days, yeah. um, sleeping so little and mm-hmm. everyone like, energy wise had like I, I I would sort of describe it as by the time we lugged everything to wherever our like like location was which is we're getting there by bicycle or just by mm-hmm. walking back and forth or running um, and got everything together finally we're able to get all of our, our actors there and for family scenes that was very tricky because it's a large it's a large mm-hmm. cast not everyone had cell phones um, mm-hmm tracking down grandma was always tricky um she was always helping someone in their their in their garden um and then that's in the fact that we didn't have electricity so we're working with generators which means we're carrying that around and by the time we even set up our first shot i i would feel like we expended our entire day's worth of energy Mm -hmm. and we're only Mm -hmm. just starting it's only just 5 a.m or you know and you have to make it through the whole time um so we really put ourselves i think like just physically even through the ringer just to like i I, i'm shocked honestly that 
we kept it up for four months like that. Um, but it's a good example of why so many people can't last that long in indie filmmaking. I mean, I lasted six yeah. years and by the end of it, I'm just like, I can't keep doing, I just can't do this anymore. It's, it's that it's, it's a young person's game or if it's, it's a really tough person's game. Cause yes. wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's, it was youth, dri- like there was a, mm. a youthful energy in naivete that allowed for that to even happen. Because I think mm. at this point, Bob's married and has a, a kid. Teresa's married, has a kid. Like there are certain circumstances that, that, you know, that allowed yeah. us to even think that we could just put put a lot on mm-hmm. pause and put our bodies through that experience <laughs> right. and that it was worth it. Yeah. I just wonder, since it's physically was so excruciating, how, what about the directing that you co-directed yes. with Teresa, right? Yes. How did you direct um, in terms of that being not in your language how how did you work with actors oh yeah <laughs> yeah i just forget i had to stay alert <laughs> um, yeah so so our our co-directing style I, I, you know it's it's something it's so unthinking in the moment um it's it, it it actually is extremely natural um teresa and i i think just in a very like there's something about us that's very wedded together i think philosophically um where we don't really have to say a whole lot to feel like an example is um our very first scene that we shot after we you know we called cut we both went to separate corners and spoke with separate actors about something to give you know to give our notes and then came right back and I knew exactly what she had already told that other actor and she knew what I had told the other like we there's just this uh like-mindedness and I, I know that sounds very mystical and kind of silly, but it, it really does. <laughs> like, I, mm-hmm. I think we really do operate in that way. Um, she, because of her connection to the community, had to take on a much like her role was she had to work with a lot of like the chief and certain authority mm-hmm. figures in a different way. Um, and so I felt like a lot of her. Uh, energy was was used for production um, or like almost as a producer for a lot of it. And I was working with Bob because I tend to obsess over over the visual. Um, so blocking. Uh, yeah. So so blocking and 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 as far as working with the actors, I mean, Isaac, again, was 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 crucial. But because it is some, you know, Jacob, as someone who's bilingual, um, he also was often helping where we can communicate something um, like a note to an actor or a change. Mm-hmm. And, and he would be able to talk to, um, mm-hmm. he would be able to translate for us. Isaac was translating for us. Um, so not all actors would communicate in English. Yes, not all. Yeah, would I, I would okay. say, yeah, no, no, no. Um, and if in a comb, uh, it, even though it's English is the the national language, um, a lot of the the older act, uh, the older uh, folks and, and our older actors don't speak English, um, which meant that mm-hmm. we did need to translate. I often kind of felt, even though I don't speak Kusal, that it, it there's something about being able to just listen to intonation and not focus on the content where I was just sort of assuming the content is being covered. And Isaac was always able to to say whether or not. Um, that it, it kind of, I don't know, it, 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 it's, it sort of helps to, it helped with my focus. It helped me to focus on just emotional 
like the, the emotional intonation or whether something needs to be louder or Mm -hmm. softer, um, more about the emotionality of what's being communicated, um, Mm -hmm. and not getting so caught up in, I guess the, the words words themselves, (laughs) there's there's something that kind of, it it was almost a peaceful (laughs) and it was my second time having to do that. Cause even with sombras, I, even though I can understand, you know, my, my mom's from Mexico and, and and it's, it's in Spanish. Um, but I'm, I'm not a, a fluent speaker and mm-hmm. there is a way where it actually kind of helped to be able to not be so heavily concerned in just assuming that the actors have it right. Just making mm-hmm. sure that they got the, the words are correct, but just focusing on, you know, the emotional communication right? Um, and gestures a lot about just focusing on gestures or, or what you do with your eyes. I, mm-hmm. I tend to be very concerned about how where your where your head is <laughs> mm-hmm. um <laughs> because i mean i do think that that expresses so much in a performance as mm. you know when you choose to lower your eyes or when you choose to look away um mm-hmm. as you mentioned your first uh feature film was based in cuba is it sort of accidental that you fell into it and both of your films are based in foreign countries uh or why did you seek that out and how do you think it would be would it be easier for you to make like indie films in the united states it just kind of worked out that way uh I, it, the very first script that we we wrote was you know about america it was interrogating a, like an american identity um mm-hmm. and that was the script that we were working on under David Milch. And we had actually spent a year in LA trying to get that off the ground and mm-hmm. we're getting closer. We had cast quite a bit of it. Um, and this was a much larger than anything. I, I, I can't even believe we were thinking that we could do this because <laughs> we, we had mm-hmm. only made a short film. Um, mm-hmm. but like, you know, and, but with David's help, um, we were able to get a, a really nice grant that we never actually were able to use called the Panavision New Filmmakers Grant. It's actually a grant mm-hmm. that um, Darren Aronofsky, I believe, got for Requiem mm-hmm. for a Dream. And it, it gives mm-hmm. you pretty much access to all of Panavision's equipment. Wow. Um, it is, and we so we and we were working with like seeking out SAG actors and, and going through sort of a more conventional process. And then it was when that fell apart that, and it, it just happened to coincide with the four year anniversary of my brother and mm-hmm. the fact that I had, you know, Greg and I had always wanted to go to Cuba together. And I like personally had been very influenced by, you know, a different like, well, Chris Marker and sort of this type of global cinema um, Mm -hmm. and French new wave um, sort of meandering films, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like Mm -hmm. Cleo from five to seven and, and certain, Mm -hmm. you know, films that are more about just like that kind of internal travel with external Mm -hmm. travel and that sort of shifting. Um, And so it just, it, it just happened that way. And it just happened, you know, and for, for Teresa, you know, the fact that Ghana and her time in Nakome just had such a profound impact on her. It just, it, the, the story generated, it, it led to us, you know, going to these places, but it's not because we were sort of seeking out and kind of looking on a map, trying to figure out <laughs> where can we make a film? Um, because if it was our choice, we probably would have just been making, you know, we, we would have made that first film uh, set uh-huh. in the Pacific Northwest. And, and uh-huh. but it's, it just, it, 
so in some ways, I guess it has been easier to shoot out of the U.S. because we were able to make it work in a way that the U.S. script that we were working with, we weren't able to. Um, mm-hmm. huh. And which is interesting. I think, I mean, most of our stories are American based. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we do hope oh, to return to, <laughs> uh, to to return to that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and it really yeah. points up a, a, yeah. a fact of life that it's so hard to get films made, e- even yes. when you had that kind of a leg up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Really influential kind of, you know, supporter, a grant, everything else. It's the more common story than not is the film fell apart. Yeah. It's some stage, some early stage usually yeah. you just can't get it to come together oh, do you yeah. think you'll try to go back to it or are you like no, i can never look at it again um oh god no i i actually i've spent enough time away from it that i think i could but we also have three other scripts that we've written uh, um, well we wrote two under david um and another one that has been in the process that we've been working on now um so i i mean I kind of hope for poetic reasons that it's the very last film that we make is that oh, first one we attempted <laughs> um, just because I like certain symmetries and <laughs> coming full circle. Um, Can I um, for a second come back to last time to Nicole? Yes. Uh, I'm curious. So um, I've read a little bit on it in the Gollywood, so-called Gollywood, mm-hmm. which is the Ghanaian film industry. Mm-hmm. How do you think your movie relates to that does it stand out basically can people immediately spot that these are the foreign like filmmakers who made this Ghanaian film so how does it work yeah that's a really great question so Gollywood um I mean it it definitely stands out from from Gollywood I mean for one because you know just like it's taking its its cue from from Hollywood. Um, it's mm. very like highly popular entertainment, and oftentimes every time you ride like a bus, um, mm-hmm. it will. There's always a, a screen on the the very front of the bus, and it's showing a Gollywood film. There, um, mm. um, but they're they're genre films, um, often mm-hmm. dealing with like certain you know. Uh, sometimes it's black magic, some, you know, comedies, slapstick comedies. Um, that that are made. I mean, I think you know, aesthetically and story-wise, Nakom is 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 very different, and so it does stand out in that way. But there are quite a few young um, Ghanaian filmmakers who don't sort of exist in the the Gollywood um, sort of structure or or with those formulas. It's interesting. Um, it, yeah, it's very, very independent of that. And in fact, when we first got there, we, we met with some Ghanaian studios just because we we didn't know what exactly the, you know, Nakum was going to entail. We thought we thought maybe that was going to be an inroad. We were told that because it didn't fall in that genre or in some of the, you know, the genre that it, it really wasn't a good fit. Um, mm-hmm. One of the, the striking differences, though, is that... Gollywood films tend to be Southern stories, you know, based in like the Ashanti, the Ashanti region. um, They're often in English um, or if they are going to be in a language, it's it's not going to be Kusal. It's going to be in in Twi. It's the the largest um, dialect that's spoken. Mm -hmm. Um, So Nakom just generally uh, is, is already separated by being a Northern story. It's very uncommon. 
with anything because it's just a, it has there is a very distinct difference in a, in the way of life. There's a, a larger uh, Muslim population as you go northern, also and Nokom included. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm curious. The film has this sort of documentary, I guess, aesthetic. Is it the look you wanted? So what was your approach when you were visualizing the film? Yeah, I, I don't know if we were particularly influenced by by documentary. And in fact, I think when we first went in, we were trying to avoid having any any anything that sort of gives into like a lo-fi look. Like we wanted to be very anti-lo-fi because... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and really wanted to avoid using handheld camera work or any sort of fast cuts. If anything, because we felt like when it came to a certain type of um, like third world cinema, that often those are the expectations aesthetically. And um, in a place like Nakome, which has such a strong sense of routine sort of collectively, um, there are certain patterns and we kind of wanted to create a very stable look to, to mimic that. And we wanted it to look lush. We wanted it to look as beautiful as we felt it, it feels. But I don't think, I think you're right for picking up on some sort of documentary influence. And I, I kind of likened it to neorealism or like a, like a mm-hmm. kind of an Italian neorealistic tendency, which is that everything is sort of organically happening. You know, all the locations are are as is, um, but you impose this fictional story onto it, which means that you're kind of capturing this constant hybrid of, you know, of, of, uh, of authentic life in the background, but your the story itself is not documentary based. <laughs> um, and I, and that's something that we, and, and a lot of that has to come from, or it comes from the fact that we just, we had limited control. You, you, you know, if, mm-hmm there are many shots where people are walking in the background or, you know, we enjoy that, that part of it because we think it lends itself to the realism of the place. And that's something that we just got used to doing. And we definitely had to, that was definitely a part of the, the sensibility of Sombras de Azul because we had a lot more control um, filming in Nacombe than we did in Havana <laughs> where, you know, we had, we were really just imposing and trying to assert like this, this tiny little fictional story within a very, um, sort of a very kind of noisy and vivacious, you know, place, um, which you're always just going to capture, you know, as it's moving around. I think it's the near realistic tendencies that, that I think have that documentary vibe. As far as like the the influences, I the one that Teresa and I kept going back to was um, Ozu, which I mean maybe it doesn't wow. it doesn't read. <laughs> yeah. it's it's probably not apparent. I've only had one person actually in an audience who made a reference to the little kids afterwards. Oh yes, the two and, boys. Yeah, and from um, Tokyo Story, right? Yes, and and, and sort of how Ozu <laughs> usually does have like kind of that whole spectrum within a family. You have multiple mm-hmm. generations. You do often have like a, a little world within it that is dedicated to to the mindset of kids and, and maybe how their lens as well. And and yeah, someone had mentioned um 
Good Morning, the Ozu film. But yeah, no, o- Ozu, and just in terms of having a familial drama that was very insular and about those hierarchies and those negotiations mm-hmm. and dynamics that play out and often with humor. So so that was <laughs> I think that was probably our, our strongest influence. So my guess my guess is wrong, too, that I, I was thinking of um, how do you pronounce it? Pather Panchali. Oh, Pather Panchali. Um, yeah. Father Panchali, yeah, by uh, by Satyajit Ray. I'm probably saying that horribly wrong. Um, um, just because the, he does that, the glories of mm-hmm. nature. He does this gorgeous, gorgeous, lush nature shots with, you know, again, family and community life that can involve like harsh exchanges, et cetera, but also kind of rhythmic beauty and that kind of thing. And yeah. he was, you know, influenced by the, obviously, the, the neorealists. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would never have guessed Ozu, but now that you say it, <laughs> that's very compelling. <laughs> Um, Pather Panchali is that would be among uh, that that that's another one that was very influential Um, and just because of what you what you described it does capture rhythms of a place um, Mm -hmm. and in sort of like these small little interactions that that are you know packed with meaning but there's there's a point where it's like I, I think for both Trace and I we we've just we watch a lot and we obsess a lot but when it comes when it comes to to when you're in the process, it's like all of that is just you hope it's just sort of in there. Um, mm-hmm. But you just I, I feel like we we just had to be so hyper present that sometimes like you just you, you make the project and then you step back and then you try to pick out, OK, what were the actual influences in the end um, if we had? It seemed like it was only in the aftermath that I'm sort mm-hmm. of able to see what what has really steeped in and, and, and mm-hmm. played itself into the screen. Yeah. So that's, yeah. You didn't work with literal models when yes. you started off, but no. you realized later what influence. Yeah. That yes. makes a little sense. Can I just take you back quickly? Just wondering about the whole, how you got distribution, which is often just, you know, impossible for just such a flood of indies. And for many people, if you take it on the film festival circuit, that is your distribution. Yes. Um, is, is that the route you took? You just thought we're, we're entering into film festivals and that's how we're hoping to get some sort of deal for distribution or, or how did you handle that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, oh, Teresa and I don't we we don't have those sort of connections with with programmers or mm. some of the programmers that we did have connections to through Sombras. It was it, it's very limited. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it was so the way that worked out is um, once we when when Akom got into Berlin, sort of what happens is different um, agencies they reach out and. Mm-hmm. And you're lucky if you if you get a bite. You, um, mm-hmm. And so we had an agency that reached out and, you know, it was, I guess, a very standard contract. And we we went with it. They 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 have a, a photographer and a publicist. They they're the ones that when you get there, they they make sure that, you know, all the that there will be attention on your your project that you will receive interviews and and it ends up being a full day's worth i think it was like a 6 hour block of just mm-hmm. constant interviews with different um mm-hmm. with with different outlets um and then you know they're the ones that are essentially responsible for trying to get it into festivals at that point um mm-hmm. and 
they were able to also make the negotiations. So that way it ended up getting certain, uh, some distribution. So they ended mm-hmm. up working with, um, Corinth, which is based in Brooklyn. Um, and they're the, and Corinth is, they're responsible for getting it onto Amazon. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the agency it's, they're wide and they're based in Paris. They also, you know, got it onto, it's like, it was on like Ethiopia. Ethiopian Airlines, I believe they're playing the comb and on Australian and Parisian television. And um, so there's there is actually like a handful of deals that came out of it. Um, I think the part that to me is quite bleak is they they deduct based on the expenses that they put into it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so even though the contract looks like it might be fair. I think by the end you get nothing and it, and all these sort of high hopes of being able to give back to certain people, um, ended up becoming slighter and slighter. Um, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I mean, we, Teresa and I sort of had this, this vision of going back to Nakome after the whole thing was over, having this reunion and showing it in, um, in the church there as a group. And we really mm-hmm. wanted that to happen. And that was kind of, the, we would often use that as the carrot that was guiding us forward. Imagine that feeling when we go back to Nakom. Mm-hmm. And we weren't able to, um, because there are certain hindrances that I, you know, I am aware of, you know, the market is not set up as, you know, mm-hmm. for foreign based films. Um, mm-hmm. Not like if it were, you know, an American indie or if it were, you know, a, a, a rom-com-ish American indie right. <laughs> um, or coming of right. age American, you know, so if there was a Hollywood things. calling card. You'd yes. have had a much better chance. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I know that there are certain particulars to our experience that I might not mm-hmm. be able to extrapolate to like certain people who aren't necessarily making a film that's, you know, set in, you know, a tiny remote village in in, you know, a tribal dialect. But, that being said, it, it did feel pretty bleak because it seemed as though Nakom on paper couldn't have done better. But I mean, for yeah, many people would look at it and say, "Wow, you did you did so well." Yeah. I mean, for example, nominated for the Independent Spirit Award, the John specifically the John Cassavetes Award for feature films made under five hundred thousand dollars. So, a nomination for an Independent Spirit Award is that's that's putting oh. you in some very fast company, such fast company yes. in terms of Hollywood that. A lot of the people who who attend and the, the award ceremony and win the awards don't even seem like indie filmmakers. Oh yeah, even if they started that way, it's like wall to wall stars now. Oh yeah. So maybe tell us a little bit about that experience. Oh <laughs> yeah, no, we were we were absolutely shocked by the nomination. <laughs> I, I I I still kind of am. I I feel like it was like I entered into some sort of like I don't know postmodern dream that that's where it's like (laughs) (laughs) all these pop references were existing within our circle for just a brief flash of a second yeah so um in our category the John Cassavetes category which to me is like that's I as in as someone who is an aspiring filmmaker I would often look at those categories and watch Mm -hmm. those films um so it felt very very close because those are the films that are actually for sure indie films yes like the way most people think of them those are the indie films absolutely um raise the funds yourself very personal money often it's parents friends of parents you maxed out your credit cards you did all sorts of things to get those films made you have oftentimes you have none of the luxuries and you're really just Mm -hmm. having to figure you know you're you're fighting to Mm -hmm. make it um 
um, mm-hmm. to, to make your, your film. And, and so I've always looked up to the filmmakers in that category in particular. So I, mm-hmm. I, I we were shocked, but we were also shocked that, you know, so the, the, the line is that it's, you know, 500,000 or less. Um, I mean, I think typically most of the films and especially the one in our year, like they were very close to that to that bar um mm-hmm. we on the other hand <laughs> were <laughs> pretty low i mean we're like we we were able to to get um two grants through um the austin film society which has been you know hugely supportive um and also we went through kickstarter but but before we were able to even um grab that um like our like oh god our budget was like 20,000 oh my or, gosh or less wow. I mean wow. it was like we were stretched very thin uh, <laughs> wow. um, I mean that to the point low. to where there was, there was even actually a scare while we were in production um, because we were running out of SD cards um, and it's not like you can just go to a Best Buy or some local like tech warehouse and grab those mm. which meant we had to mm. figure out a, and, oh and we ran out of nine volt batteries for our labs which meant that oh that really would have shut everything down anyway uh, <laughs> and oh, we had wow. to figure out a way of getting that ac- like you know we actually made a, a, a call via social media to a stranger who happened to be going to Accra and you know wired the money and they traveled and put it on wow. a bus that went 15, uh, 15 hours, you know, overnight straight to us. It was on this public bus and we, we were lucky that it was, it was in the, the cargo section. So oh my God. that saved our production. But anyway, uh, <laughs> we were on the very low end, um, in terms of what our budget was. Um, mm-hmm. so it was, it was shocking to be a part of that and also mm-hmm. to learn, okay, even in this, this, category that I really look up to that, mm-hmm. um, that there's even a, a massive spectrum within that. Um, mm-hmm. also, so, so yeah, well, let Go me ahead. just take you through it. So you get the call. Yeah. I mean, let's okay. do the Academy yeah. Awards okay. nonsense yes. interview. You okay. get the call, what's your reaction? And then what it's like, what is it like going there? Yeah. So I got, I got the call, um, from our, uh, our producer. Um, this is our, uh, like an, a U.S. producer who saw the film and just like, you know, um, decided he just really loved it and hopped on um, uh, Geo. So Geo called me to let me know we were in shock. All of a sudden, Then we get, you know, the emails explaining, you know, what what to expect. The At first, we thought we weren't going to be able to go because it costs money to go. You have to buy your seat. And they don't pay. Oh yeah, they don't pay. They, and we had to for- sort of you know, ask for a waiver and they, they granted it to us, but I, I forgot the amount. I think I told you in the, at the time, Eileen, oh, I think you did, it was like but it was thousands and thousands, yes. right? Yeah. It was, yeah. it was yeah. in the thousands and yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but then even going, I mean, the whole thing was very surreal. We had, you walked the red carpet. I, I remember it, it was the same year as Moonlight. Um, mm-hmm. and Manchester by the sea. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm huge fans. Uh, I'm a huge fan <laughs> of, of both and, and of Kenneth Lonergan. Um, when we walked the red carpet, it was right after, uh, Naomi Harris. Um, oh, so, wow. yeah, so I, I mean, but so you're looking at everyone's fabulous dresses yes. and the whole nonsense. Oh yes. I mean, the whole thing. The um, I, we got, yeah. yeah, they, they sent us champagne. So you do get oh. a bottle of champagne in the mail. <laughs> Um, right before, um, I mean, but Teresa and I, 
I mean, we're such weirdos and we're so off the grid <laughs> that it just, it feels, it just felt really strange. Um, and if we were more graceful schmoozers, maybe, maybe we would have made more of it in that way. But I got a lot out of it just as a, as a witness. And I think just for the shock value of being, <laughs> being there. Um, I, I did find out after, uh, I recently was able to be a part of this really great program through the Austin film society, um, where I were, I got a workshop, both Trace and I got a workshop, our script. Um, mm-hmm. and this was at Richard Linklater's home. Who's he's the, the founder of the, mm-hmm. of the AFS and, and Catherine and Hardwick. The famous director who comes out of Indies. Oh yes. And is one of the few yeah. that's been able to live outside of Hollywood and right. Austin which, which, based. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Austin based. Um, and so we got to, you know, he was, he, he was a part of, um, a part of this group. And then also Catherine Hardwick, the filmmaker, she directed 13. That was her mm-hmm. sort of first film. Um, and also probably more famously for, for others, uh, directed <laughs> the, the first film of Twilight. Twilight. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but what was interesting is talking to her about it afterwards. She, cause she, she had asked, you know, asked us if we had any representation, um, following, you know, the independent spirit awards. And we're like, no, we don't have, we don't have representation. She's like, Hmm, uh, that that's bullshit. Yeah. She's like, I guarantee all the, all the guys in that category walked away with some sort of representation. And it was, it, it was very eye opening because I'm, that's not often in my mind about what ways are we, or aren't we being discriminated against because, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, when asked a lot about like being a female filmmaker, it always feels mm-hmm. a little odd because it's just been, you know, Teresa and I in our own little corner and we haven't, we've just assumed that it was more about class that we're not in any, you know, that, mm-hmm. um, that we're not able to open certain doors or more about nepotism actually. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and not necessarily, we just haven't been so hyper-focused on ways that you're being cut off because that, I, I think we just, I, I don't know if it, it just hasn't always been the fuel that we work with. Um, Right, which which yeah. leads me to you know it's I was going to ask you the embarrassing question, but only because it seems like the the kind of interviews you've already had tend to ask you the question about you identifying as women of color yeah. and and Teresa as a trans woman of color and how you know you're you're it's, it was expressed in Filmmaker Magazine as you're kind of taking up a burden of a huge lack of representation in mainstream cinema, et cetera. So it's really interesting to hear you say that that you're not. You're not tending to think of yourselves in in that way, but that does seem to be how you're getting represented yes. in the in the press in the oh, media. Absolutely, and I I mean I think it speaks to our times mm-hmm. um, very much. Where it's I mean in ways that I that I hope will I mean I'm, I'm being optimistic. Hope that it will benefit um, mm-hmm. film in in the long run. Is you know this concern about identity politics, but personally, no, I mean, yes, it's all there. Um, just because it's part of our, our internal identity, but we don't, I don't think that either of us, and I know Teresa has a lot to say about, you know, trans representation and and she Mm -hmm. feels no concern about having to, her worldview is so broad and Mm -hmm. she feels that her transness and whatever is very specific to her, her point of view is going to be translated indirectly anyhow um Mm -hmm. and that she doesn't necessarily need to have a a, a trans woman of color 
character in order to in order to access that. I don't know if that if that makes sense. No, that's a great answer. Um, yeah. You were really wondering. I mean, how much you wanted to to make films yeah. about your own identity in that kind of narrower. I, I hate to use the word narrower, but in, yeah. in that kind of kind category, of in a literal that, way. I I, yeah. I feel like we're we're very non literal folks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, and I one example is you know even Nakom. I think that there is a very um, legitimate reading of it that sees Adrisu as Teresa. And her own experience, like, sees the film as her sort of trying to process that experience of being in a home, being in a place that she loved very dearly, but knowing that mm-hmm. she was going to have to return mm-hmm. to the U.S. And sort of the, the mm-hmm. conflicted and guilt-ridden nature of that. And, and I, I think that's, that's in there. Um, and so I, I would hope that a lot of our stories um, can, can, can be far m- far more flexible and still provide like this, this channel between, you know, what, what our personal identities and, and, and feelings are, mm-hmm. um, and capture that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but otherwise I find that it's, it's, it's way too confining, um, to have to carry that kind of burden, um, mm-hmm. or to be so literal. Would you have reference? Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Would you ever participate in like female filmmakers film festivals of sorts? Um, I I have actually already. Yeah. So I was a part of, um, it's called, it's, it's in Missouri and Columbia, Missouri. Of all places. Yeah, of all places. (laughs) Um, It's one of, it's such a charming festival. It's called the Citizen Jane (laughs) Film Festival and it's films made by women. Uh Um, And what do you think of that? um, Oh, well, the thing is, I, I, I love it because I love festivals generally. I, I just, there's something very special about being able to connect with audiences, um, especially when you've worked so hard and, and you're, you're kind of lucky if you have anyone who's not just your parents in uh, the audience (laughs) Um, or my mom, which I've had, I've actually had an audience where I walked, it was I went with my mom and she sat in the back because she always has to sit in the back and it was just a sea of empty seats. And then finally someone Aww. walked in and I was like, okay, well, thank goodness. And then it turned out that that was the moderator. <laughs> I was like, okay, oh, no. this is going to be a very sad screening. Um, <laughs> um, eventually a few people like did come in, but I'm not even sure if maybe those were like festival interns that they just asked to come in. And who knows? Um, but as far as like niche festivals, I, I, they they definitely have their value, and I I've I mean, and I've always been I I have been like in the moment very inspired by um, by them, and and especially the Sis and Jane Film Festival because it's run by college students and all volunteers mm-hmm. at uh, Stevens College in mm-hmm. Columbia, Missouri, um, and it has been. It, I've been able to meet quite a few you know other female filmmakers. Uh, through that festival and I've played there twice once with Sombras and once with Nocom. so I, I I do love that festival in particular I don't, but I will say that when I've been on you know panels for being a female filmmaker there is something I don't know how to say all this correctly <laughs> um, oh I could I could say it for you as soon as someone asked me how do you as a yeah. woman blah 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 yeah. I immediately like I, I can't I can't even answer it I just yeah. I can't think of it in those terms I as a woman yes. now say oh. I mean, it's, 
It is ghettoization, wouldn't you exactly. say? I'll say it. I'll be the one. It's, they try to get on. Yes, eyes. yes. It's like you're, <laughs> yeah. you're being othered and <laughs> or like, yeah. you know. And, or, and who am I to try to speak for all women? Yes. It just seems so awkward. That's that's the, the big one for me. Um, <sighs> and, and it wasn't actually until that, that sort of revelation through, through Catherine Hardwick about, you know, maybe not getting an agent or some sort of representation mm-hmm. following that that nomination, mm-hmm. maybe that being gender based. Um, yeah. That, but aside from that, you know, because Teresa and I have worked on our own, we're not discriminating against each other. <laughs> like we've been, we've created this protective little shield where we really don't have to invest a lot of concern or attention into that because it can be very distracting or it, it, it could be unmotivating. But on a panel, it's I've, I've it had mixed feelings. Yeah, it becomes a thing. <laughs> yeah. And then all, then all of a sudden, I part of me just wants to be able to talk about the film itself. Um, mm-hmm. And so my my initial instinct whenever I hear that, you know, I'm being asked to be on a, a panel about what it's like to be a woman in film, even though I think it's really important to put attention on that because the mm-hmm. disparity is so obvious and appalling. But part of me just wants to say, can't you just put the men in the festival on that panel and they can they can talk about how they're going to solve it for <laughs> or be a part of the solution. And, you know, the, the women can talk about their own work um, because it's yeah. again, it, it kind of removes them from from the issue for me it's an it's an awkward fit i'm not a good spokesperson for a category mm-hmm. and i've never mm-hmm. felt that sort of comfort or that confidence i mean going forward you feel like you and teresa will be able to stay i mean are you planning to stay in a kind of micro budget world if that's even possible it sounds like it might be for you guys you've you've done pretty well <laughs> or do you have some sense that, no we're going to have to do that foray into the larger crueler um, world of more expensive filmmaking. It feels very uncertain. I, I think that mm. both Nicom and Sombras allowed us to embody our values in a very particular way that is is really lucky and to be as micro budget and and mm. and, and have it have it happen, have it work out. Um, I think that our our US based stories, I don't know if that would even be possible. It's story by story. Um what what the budget would mandate in order to make mm-hmm. it happen um, without losing, mm-hmm. yeah, without losing the quality that you sort of envision for it. Mm-hmm. But would you say that um, the fact that Nakam got into Berlin Film Festival and then got nominated for the Independent Spirit Award change anything for you? Hmm. This specific kind of exposure. Um. Oh goodness, I. Does it open opportunities or not I, really? I don't know. I, I, I can't really tell. I think it like there's a part of me that that hopes, oh, may, maybe that that we will be taken seriously if we were to approach, you know, um, certain actors or certain potential collaborators, that at least they will know that what we make, I hope it speaks to quality, what we're capable of. Um, but I also can't tell if it's just an illusion. Like it just makes you feel good in the moment, but then in the end, you're sort of right back to square one. The project is insanely difficult. You're kind of crazy for even trying to embark on it, <laughs> and <laughs> so I, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I, I guess that's just it's. It, I think it will probably be determined by whatever the the next project is that we make, whether or not mm-hmm. it's a little more difficult or 
or a little easier, fractionally easier. Um, Mm -hmm. It certainly has been valuable in terms of giving me just greater exposure of of what a a distribution and exhibition process really does look like um, in ways that we can sort of fall prey to certain contracts. And it it tells people at the very least that, yeah, you're not green. You've been through the whole whole process, the whole indie process in a way and come out the other side and done well initially. I mean, the tricky thing is, is, is you tend to jump from subject to subject and even, and even, region to nation to nation, region to region. And, you know, there's a lot of unimaginative qualities you encounter that could lead that to be an issue. Like, well, wait, if you were going to try to do another, almost like another Nacombe, it's so ridiculous that they're so into like seeing you do the same thing over and over exactly, And then they're all thrown. But wait, now you're doing something totally differently. How can I know if you can do this new thing? You know, that kind of nonsense. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a good point. You know who I think kind of has that that same Risquache orientation mm-hmm. in his work and 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 his work kind of remo- there there is a little bit of a similarity in in his work and maybe Nakom or our work is uh, Sean Baker. I don't know if you know that filmmaker. Um I don't. He yeah. did Florida project, yeah, Florida right? project mm-hmm. um, Tangerine and Starlet. Mm-hmm. And then oh, right, right, right. we <laughs> actually, we were lucky enough to meet him when we had made Sinnerman and he was on the mm-hmm. festival circuit with one of his first films, Prince of Broadway. I think that that's one of, that's one of the, one of the filmmakers who's, who struck us as being someone who's been able to make American based uh, mm-hmm. narratives in a really like, you know, very innovative, very <laughs> on his own, off the grid sort of way. Like his his methods sort of mimic our own. I'm hopping on your question, yeah. Evgenia, but I can't resist. How do indie filmmakers make a living? And I know that the answer is always different, but it's, oh, yeah. I'm sure it, to most people, it's like mind mind boggling. How do you possibly do it? Oh, it is mind boggling. <laughs> I, 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 I wonder if you can. Mary I wonder Rich. if it's kind of like <laughs> Mary Rich. Yeah. I kind of think maybe it's like like punk music, you know, kind of like mm-hmm. once you actually learn your instruments, then all of a sudden you're sort of mm-hmm. out of the category. Once you're able mm-hmm. to make a living, you're probably not independent anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Right. Right. <laughs> you've, you've graduated somehow or fallen outside of that category um, just by circumstance of being able to make a living. I'm not, right. I'm not quite sure. I mean, Teresa and I have just sort of picked up We've never been working inside the industry as a means to make a living, which I think is one approach. I know some people who like they they try to kind of they work as PAs or or certain types of assistants or editors and they sort of stay Mm -hmm. within their industry or their field. Um, Mm -hmm. I've done some editing gigs, um, Mm -hmm. especially this last year. But, you know, I think we just kind of we're scroungers. We just, we somehow get by and I don't know. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I will say though that, um, especially for, for Sombras, um, both Sombras and Nakom, um, like we, like for Sombras, especially because we just come off of not getting that one project that we were working on with David Milch right. off the ground. And we were, we were so distraught of having spent all of our, every single one of our resources trying to like keep ourselves afloat. And there's this moment of like, you know, we just, we, we were just so distraught that we decided to go to my mom's little apartment. We moved in with her 
We just threw all of our stuff in in a car and that was it. And that's when I started working on Sombras. And I remember at the time feeling like, oh God, this is... This is my my low point. Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm in my mid twenties, <laughs> living um, with mom, living with my mom in her little apartment, and uh. oh my god, and 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 just and just how sort of depressed it, the whole feeling felt. But mm. I look back and I'm like that low point was really, was pretty kind of great. It was really kind of <laughs> magical, and it was what allowed us to have like to sort of feign the type of stability in order to even focus on a project. Um, mm-hmm. So for like, even during that time, um, we like, we'd wake up at the same time, we'd go to the library. I was, she was working on one script. I was working on another for three hours. We'd take our lunch break. We'd go to a coffee shop just for a change mm-hmm. of scenery, finish off and then end the day by watching a film and then start the whole thing all over again. And it's kind of like, I need to fight my way out of, out of this situation. I can't, I can't live with my mom. <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, which leads me to one, one of, I'm assuming your scrounger (laughs) ways of getting by was, was being uh, grad school. You got an MA from UC Berkeley. In fact, you were at UC Berkeley when you got the notification, I believe anyway, about the independent spirit award. So, I mean, at least that's one way that you can live and have some flexibility, some free time anyway. But I just wondered if the Academy, I mean, you've kind of mentioned you were film Mm -hmm. studies trained in a lot of your ways, but has the Academy in an ongoing way had an influence beyond helping you, helping you get by a little bit, or has it had an ongoing influence on your work? Oh, yes. Uh, So being in the the PhD track at Berkeley, Mm -hmm. which at the time I applied the week I got back from from the shoot in in Ghana, cool. I oh. I was I <laughs> I was very sick at the time. I had <laughs> terrible parasites, um, getting over a lot of illnesses. But I it was that week that I applied, um, and it was because I had always been sort of flirting with the idea of going back to mm-hmm. school um, because I. I, I, I like film in multiple capacities and not just production. I just like being able to be around people who care about it and talk about it and analyze it. And in fact, I get I get a lot of just personal gratification from that. Of course, the Academy is not the only way to to be a part of that kind of um, community. But that was one. And it was one that seemed very familiar to me because of undergrad. And and I sort of thought that I could just pick up where I left off at Columbia. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that to me made sense. And then I had also kind of organized in my head where I would be able to teach and do this research about a subject I care so much about. And then on the the summers be able to film and Mm -hmm. that would create a type of structure that, you know, allowed for, um, allowed for me to be a creative person, but also to live a a slightly more normal life. Um, Mm -hmm. But of course that, that became a lot trickier because being a graduate student is a full-time job. And when I entered into Berkeley, we were still in the editing process. My first semester, um, I was editing while taking classes Mm. and, and was often flying back to, to Austin because that's where editor was living. Um, Mm -hmm. whenever I could, as well. And we were also doing fundraising. So I was often going back to, to Austin for fundraising. And then we, we ended up on the, my second year, that's when Nakom had its premiere at Berlin. And then that started a whole new 
adventure of trying to juggle mm-hmm. teaching, <laughs> teaching <laughs> graduate work, and also traveling. I was traveling a lot that year. Nicole played in it played in many festivals. I only went to a handful, um, just the ones that mm. it was a priority for them to make sure that the filmmakers were present. It ended up being, I, I mean, I guess I, I sort of had a neat, a neater picture, but in, in reality, it, it was just a, a, a whole messy situation mm. of trying to juggle so much and then feeling like I just wasn't giving enough of myself to, to any of, to either of them. I think that there are major <laughs> opportunities in a comb that I, I would have been I would have been able to pluck out um, and been sharper with had, mm-hmm. you know, had I not fe- felt so sort of exhausted. And then, I mean, I remember I had I had to give a big presentation the day I got <laughs> back from from Hong Kong and I uh, at, oh. at the festival there. And um, I was just very concerned about whether or not I was I, I was living up to what I thought I could as a graduate student. I was actually more concerned about that than I was even about whether or not I was giving enough to Nakom at that point. Oh, um, Kelly, you're kidding me. Oh, no, <laughs> really? it's crazy. Yes, it really <laughs> <laughs> Really? Yeah. Just, Living up to being a grad student? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. See, this oh is why God. it's really nice to have you in my life, Eileen. <laughs> it's it's oh. good to have that voice. But yeah, no, at the time, I thought, oh. I thought God, I'm... I'm well, well yeah. did you at least, and I already know the answer, yeah. but I'll ask anyway, did you at least play the the filmmaker I'm a real filmmaker card with professors with your yeah. with your peers to be like you know sure I might not be quoting chapter and verse from whatever theory we're studying but I'm flying back from Hong <laughs> Kong and I'm in film festivals and all the rest of it did you at least use that um Maybe no, not I enough. Know you're no, say because no. there's a one which I sort of felt ashamed. Oh my god! Oh my <laughs> I god. felt a little bit like I was a closeted filmmaker who, you know, was wow. constantly trying to have to remind people that no, I come from a cinema studies background. I actually didn't even go to film school. This is, <laughs> um, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, in um, full disclosure, the reason yeah. I knew you would say no is because <laughs> I was the one who uh, Kelly was was my teaching assistant for a while. We became friends. And I found out, of course, you told me about your Independent Spirit Award nomination. And I was the one that went to the to the department to tell them, do you realize you have someone right here? <laughs> and this is kind of a big deal. And because I don't think you would have ever told them. No, if I hadn't told them. I <laughs> and they were eye-poppingly wowed as yeah. they should have been. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> no, that uh, it's much appreciated. <laughs> no, I'm I'm really not good at talking about. God, you should have done this and like and demanded a higher TA salary. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm a TA. I mean, I would have wanted. <laughs> you know, the the only time where I felt like it was really put to to true use was when I. I was helping with um, Professor Scholar's uh, production class, and that's when I sort of mm-hmm. had my own my own group of aspiring filmmakers that I was working with, mm-hmm. and that's when I could mm-hmm. actually talk much much more comfortably about you know about Nakom and Sombras and and talk about those stories, bring in all of pretty much the all those templates that I had created. Um, in order to to organize these productions and share, like I was able to share certain resources and stories that I had gathered. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and actually you did that in my, I, when I taught history yes. of avant-garde film yes. and you had your own discussion section, you did the same thing. And, and that was gangbusters. Students just loved that. Oh, yeah. Um, you actually had them working <laughs> on film itself, you know, in a Stan Brackage-ish way yes. and all that stuff. And that brings it all to life for them. The, the theory stuff, they <laughs> they tended to care very little yeah. about, but they loved your section. <laughs> yeah. I made them make those Stan Brackage handmade films. <laughs> that was fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I really uh, like academic discussions of film really do excite me. Um, if anything, and if anything, it's it's sort of a reminder of sort of the depth of like subtextual meaning that you can generate out of a piece of, of, of cinema, whether or not it's intended by the filmmakers or not. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, the, the scholars will look for it um, in a way that I think. It can be both. It can be humorous on the other end. Right. I actually went to a Q and A. It was was it was with um, Tommy Lee Jones made a western. Do you remember this? Uh, oh yes, Three I Burials. do. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I remember there was a film student, like a film studies uh, student, in the audience who had asked about the meaning of the one black goat in this one scene. Or, or maybe it was all white goats in the scene. And he just, mm-hmm. I, I wish he had been a little more sensitive because it was just a student. But he, I think he, he just kind of, yeah, he was like in shock. He's like, what, what? He's like, it's because those were the goats that were there. I don't we're, know. We're wrangled for yeah. me. How do I know? <laughs> so oh, it can be really great. funny on one end where it's like, oh, you watch people make meaning of something that you you threw up on the screen that were, it was often just because of just pragmatic decision making or just what was available but then on the other hand it's like if it's on the screen it's it's there you can create some sort of meaning and i i do enjoy being on that end of it of seeking mm-hmm. out meaning in what you see Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and you know, if you, if, you know, there are certain theories where the film is kind of made again in the mind of the yeah. the viewer. It's that cooperate. The cooperation is between the the thing being read and the reader. I know that's yeah. Oh, people hate that theory. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a lot in it. I Obviously, agree. We'd all have the same reading of a Shakespeare play. Otherwise, it would be enough said about Hamlet a long time ago. It's kind of silly not to think that that's going on. Yeah. And also, there's that you sh- sure sure you had what all sorts of limitations on what you would do all sorts of contingencies on the set but at least in my experience if you're in the editing room the whole time editors are just wizards for seeing patterns seeing designs drawing them together in really interesting cuts so in post you really do remake the film again and you have much more time and much less chaos oh absolutely think about yes what what the patterns are in your own work Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. The film is made so many times. It's 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 internalized Mm. and then you have to translate it onto a script and then you have to translate it based on just like real life components and facts and Mm. limitations. And then all of a sudden it becomes a whole new a whole new film in the editing room. And I know that sounds so it sounds so cliche, but it's just it's it's so true. And it's it was a that was the biggest revelation of filmmaking to me was editing. It's it's shocking how different. I mean, and in production, like uh, one example with Nakom is the the character Hassan, the little boy. Um, mm-hmm. He was written on the page to be far far more 
uh, just a, a much lighter character, you know, kind of playful. Mm-hmm. But because of uh, Smilo, who plays his son, there's something about his his facial expressions. He's like a he's like a little old wise man. Um, yes, he's very yeah. serious, and he changed the mm-hmm. entire tenor of that character um, for the better um, because he kind of has an Adrisu like seriousness, um, which mm-hmm. you know. Uh, sort of sharpens that dynamic. I mean, and so it's just, it's constantly changing its, its, its meaning and it's uh, in, in what exactly the film is along the way. I mean, that's just a tiny little example, but it's, yeah, it's really, I thought of that, that boy is such a solemn figure. And when he gets slapped, it's just like such a shocking moment. And his reaction (laughs) is so profound. Like, that that marked him for life kind of thing yeah <laughs> yeah yeah which if he'd stayed a lighter character i don't know that it would have played that way no not at all like I, it was truly yeah. it was again like a it was a, a lucky change um mm-hmm. and, and sort of shift in in meaning it makes you realize what an insane form film is film is a nutty crazy it's so overly complicated <sighs> that when you're working on one you're just like how how did we ever get to this form it's the it's sometimes it's just a wonder a yeah. good film ever gets made oh. <laughs> because it's so hard. <laughs> yeah, it's such a strange experience. Um, I kind of when at the end of Nicole, when we came back, I'm like, I don't know if that was Nirvana or hell. Like, I don't know what exactly I experienced because it's just it's such a complicated uh, relationship that you have to everything mm-hmm. that you're 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 putting yourself into in order to see it through. And, and, it, and it could turn out it could turn out awful. You, you, you might yeah. have made every single wrong decision and, and offend everyone and and, you know, let down all these people you care about. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you won't know. And you, I mean, watching the yeah. dailies is this haunting thing because often everyone will love the dailies. Oh, yeah. You know, you'll watch what you shot that day. Well, you used to now that it's digital. Even that is falling by the wayside. But yeah. You used to. You'd watch what you shot. And and usually everyone's all enthused because mm-hmm. it all looks gorgeous and it's all looks great. Of course, that's probably not always true. But in my experience, yes. everyone was always thrilled. Yeah. And then you see the first cuts, the first cut assembly of the film. And you're like, what happened? Yeah, that's right. Like, right. It does not cut together. It doesn't work. And the feeling of just doom. Oh, <laughs> You've yeah. ever been there in independent film and then you're going to have to truck that film around and, yeah, and try and to you're sell it. be the face of and it. And have to <laughs> be the face of it and live with it and pretend yeah. it's good. Yeah. Oh, nightmare. Oh, I, yeah. Nightmare. I think isn't the line that your film is always worse than your dailies and but better <laughs> better than your rough cut or like I think it yeah. always exists between. Last year I was at yeah. um, talk yeah. by Alexander Payne and he said that his rough cuts always suck. He can't even like look at them. But then he sees his goal as a director to make them suck less and that's all he can really do, he said. Um, yeah, I think even with Sombras we, we felt that even more severely because with Nakom what we lent our, what we had was time. I mean, well, it, I say that and yet it felt like it was all at neck break speed. But mm-hmm. um, but we definitely we like we prioritize just getting getting the footage, not trying as hard as we could to not leave a scene until we felt we felt like we had gotten the coverage that we needed. But with Sombras, because we only had 16 days, we were working so fast um, and oftentimes we were casting people on the spot to just say lines. And in order to just to walk away with a film that I came away feeling like we got nothing. I, I really felt sick to my stomach that entire time where ev- like the first day we were behind the second day we're like twice as behind third. Like it just, it felt like <laughs> it felt like that. Um, 
And, mm. and it wasn't until we edited that I realized, oh, okay, this is... Um, I mean, luckily we had tons of B-roll. That's when the film became something entirely... Well, not entirely different, but it, but that that's where it really sort of shows what hopefully it was meant to be or I mean, what you mm. can make out of it. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, editing. So you had the, the X factor worked in your favor, it seems like, and it, sometimes it doesn't. The mystery of a yes. of film, you know, I was just... I guess I read an interview with Joel Cohen. I'm always harping on the Cohen brothers. Sorry, oh, and he never he was apologized lamenting. For that. <laughs> <laughs> he was lamenting the move to digital because mm. he loved the reveal of the dailies, where you see things you didn't intend. Yeah, like there's the mystery of film was always it'll show you something that even if you're looking at it with the naked eye while it's being shot, you won't see. Yeah, and he said we well, you lose it with digital, where nobody even gives a damn about the dailies because they can see right there while you're shooting they can see what they're going to get and there's no reveal yeah and he said you know cinematographers love it because you know as as roger deakins or someone mm -hmm. would say now i can sleep nights yes <laughs> I, I know what we got <laughs> but he said he's really sorry and sad because there was a, a magical reveal in in footage film footage yeah when you saw what you had that i mean that doesn't surprise me i we because of just the nature of our productions, we've never been able to review our footage mm. ever. So, so you were really surprised. Yeah, oh we were gosh. very, yeah. Oh, I mean, for us, I guess it's it's been in our favor. If not, we would be so, I, I don't know if our dailies would have given us that boost of confidence. I think it would have mm -hmm. been, oh, crap, is, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, is, is this something we need to rewrite? Um, and we might, just knowing Teresa and I, we probably would have, we're, we're prone to second guessing ourselves. So the, the most that we're able, if we're able to just, you know, do something and remove it immediately to, in order to clear out space to, to move on, that's probably for the mm -hmm. better for, for us. Um, mm -hmm. but I can see that. Cause I, I imagine also when you see your dailies, it, it changes what, how you're going to direct the next day. And then it the just, it's in, 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 in over and over again. Um, so it becomes an entirely different, uh, like discourse that, that line of that, you know, conversation between dailies and the next day's work. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. But it's probably lost. Now. Yeah, all disappearing. <laughs> um, well, and you probably shot digital anyway, so it was kind of a moot point. Oh, well, yeah, but I love, I love film. And in fact, often, mm. I mean, I think that's just what, you know, with working with Bob, it's always about how can you get closer to that, that film, that filmic quality? Mm. What can you do? Um, and I think a lot of good digital cameras, they're trying to be the most like film um, aesthetically. Oh, as it they seems possibly like it's can. gotten closer and closer. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. There's, I mean, it, it really is converting so, so far into digital though, that mm -hmm. even if you do sh shoot on film, you eventually digitize it where it's, right. it's back again in a digital format. Um, <clears throat> I mean, of course it preserves the, the look that maybe you intended for, but yeah, nothing, there is no pure film, pure cell celluloid anymore in, in like, no, we, in, we, in, that's true. <laughs> unless you're working with like true avant-garde experimental, you know, uh, film. Right. Sorry. I oh, yeah. know, Evgeny, I've stepped on your questions a million times. I basically had this question, Gali, that um, I wonder if you know, because of Netflix, Amazon, Facebook, I think, as well now mm -hmm. becoming production companies and uh, there's a whole different nature of distribution straight to streaming do you think it's easier 
to get funding, you know, from them specifically because they clearly need a lot of content. Yeah. What's your experience? I, mm-hmm. um, I mean, because I haven't had personal experience approaching um, any of these outlets, but we've certainly expanded expanded the amount of, of, of outlets and platforms for content. So I, I imagine that the logical conclusion would be that there, that means that there are more opportunities, um, for funding, whether or not those opportunities are available to independent, uh, filmmakers or creators versus, um, I mean, there has been this this movement from from film into into television, or now into Netflix and, and Amazon, with a you know a lot of names that that wouldn't have maybe initially have made that that transition, um, even with like A list actors, and uh, there there used to be a much stronger separation between the media or mediums. I'm not <laughs> I'm not answering this this question very clearly, but I I do think that there's potential for more opportunities for funding. I just don't know who those opportunities are most available to. If it just is becoming like a different type of structured studio system that is now just directed by different different uh, companies and figureheads, but whether or not that's going to be available to like, you know, your up and coming small indie filmmakers, I'm I'm not sure. I'm hopeful. Can I ask you one more question? Yes. Just the completely generic one, because it's a it's became a very fraught question um, for me in my last years of recent years of teaching. What advice would you give to would be indie film like students who want to become filmmakers or just young people who want to become filmmakers? Yeah. You know, go for it or run away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I, I guess looking back, my my advice. And the thing that has even allowed for, you know, me and Teresa to even make the films that we've made has been because we we found we found each other creatively. And mm-hmm. so my advice usually is to find the people who you you jive with creatively um, and, and work with them. So starting collectives, I think, is actually a really effective approach because it, as a collective of creatives, you can you can work on you can generate your content. You can, you have a, a, a team that you can, you know, get feedback on and workshop your work. You can create, you know, pool together resources. Um, I think an example of that is Court 13. Um, it's the, the collective behind Beasts of the Southern mm-hmm. Wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, based in New Orleans. So I think models like that, especially with, you know, young Young filmmakers who I think are being brought up in a time where there is much more of a of a sort of a collective communal mindset. How do we share the resources we have? I think that is one approach versus to just go about it independently, move to Hollywood. I mean, may, that, that could easily work for someone, but I, I wouldn't know the first thing about that or how exactly yeah. to, to make that work out positively for for you so i i think form a collective form get a into collective a group, get, yeah a of, yeah yeah um that's good advice that's really that, good advice especially because i mean once you're I, we're lucky bob has his one bag of equipment which has his lighting gear and he's been able to figure out how to work minimally so it's just it's very doable to have certain resources together um and it doesn't have to be a lot you know you don't have to be an entire warehouse um Mm-hmm. Um, the other, I guess, advice is 
you know, I, I've, I've definitely talked to quite a few aspiring filmmakers, but where the it's the mission is there, but maybe they're still trying to figure out their voice. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I, I'm, I'm just I'm such a sucker for having just strong. I, I mean, the Andrew Saris, <laughs> I guess uh, just like that auteur. I like point of views. I like styles. I like consistencies and obsessions. I guess I'm sort of an obsessive person myself, which is why I like to see the whole like ouvoir of a single filmmaker. I, I, I mean, I think that's also just because it's easier to organize, you know, what you see using mm-hmm. that as um that is a, as a structure, but, um, I would say watch a lot of films, watch a lot of good films is also advice that I, I like to give versus just because you want to do it. Um, like find, find what exactly you're passionate about and are sort of driven to communicate instead of just, Oh, Hey, films are cool. I think I'd yeah. like to make them. And or, you, really you know, I, 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 I want to have a voice in this, but you know, you got to figure out what your voice is. Um, mm-hmm. It's always hard because on the other hand, someone with no voice and who just thinks films are cool will go on to have some huge career. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just be like, <laughs> well, so and it's like, yeah, what, what did I know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that does kind of remind me. I remember when I was in New York and I was teaching uh, like my my co-teachers, like uh, he had a roommate who's an aspiring filmmaker. It's like, oh, you've got to meet my roommate. And when I met him. He had asked me like my my top three favorite films. And, and so I, I gave him my, my top three at the time. And his were very different. I think mm-hmm. he started off with Born Identity and I started mm-hmm. off with Sans Soleil. So we were already in entirely <laughs> different, <laughs> different worlds. But I remember his the last line of that conversation was, well, anyway, get in line. <laughs> and I was saying, oh. am I back? Oh, yeah, Kelly? You, you're, back. you're back. You disappeared okay. for a little bit. You were just about to say, after get in line. Oh, yeah. So he said, get in line, which is a very audacious thing to say to someone you just met. Um, mm-hmm. And then, but it, it just became very <laughs> striking to me that, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm of an entirely different universe. Then, I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we're calling ourselves, this, like, we're both aspiring, maybe very superficially for the same thing, but we were on two different poles and so right. yeah the person who i will tell to to move to to hollywood and and sort of climb up the ladder it would be to him right. yeah right. um the person who wants right. to who i'm you know recommending to form a collective and, and pull together resources that's yeah. a, a different someone with a different sensibility yeah. get in line yeah get in line <laughs> Uh, all right well i yeah. think i think we've asked you everything we can even imagine yeah i think it's unless a, you have another one Evgenia. no i think it's a wrap we have a long ass thing so we're gonna have to probably trim this but there's so much good material thank you so much kelly okay kelly thank you so much well, thank you so much that was great yes yeah,